When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. It's no secret that the wealthy and the super wealthy live by a different set of rules than you and me do. Uh, Chances are you can get away with a little bit more. Chances are whatever itch you have that needs to be scratched, it can get scratched if you are super wealthy. If you want to meet with celebrities or important people or powerful people, chances are you can do that the more money you have. Now, what's wealthy and what's super wealthy? Well, I I don't know, honestly. I think if you have more than, say, $25 million, you're wealthy. I would say if you have more than $200 million, you're super wealthy. If you're in the billionaire level, I mean, there's only a handful of people on the planet that are in billionaire level. So, I mean, that's such a rare commodity that you're among the wealthiest people that's ever existed in the history of human civilization. Even if you're super wealthy, though, that doesn't explain everything. What is it, What is this all leading to? Well... Jeffrey Epstein was certainly wealthy. Jeffrey Epstein, of course, was the financier who was uh, convicted of of sex abuse of minors, or I forget what the actual charge was. I'll, I'll tell you in a second. I think it was trying to procure a minor as a prostitute. And then he was on trial. He was going to go on trial for other sex crime-related charges, and then he died while uh, under the custody, the watchful eye of the prison officials at the uh, MCC in Manhattan. But the Jeffrey Epstein was super wealthy. It looks like the will that he signed before his death put his net worth at over $577 million, which is $18 million more than previously reported. So he wasn't quite in billionaire territory, but even after he went to prison, he had a lot of money. That being said, after 2004, when he got involved in that prior sex abuse case, you would think, uh, excuse me, 2008, when he pleaded guilty to soliciting and procuring a minor for prostitution, you would think that some people, people of high esteem, people of a significantly elevated reputation, you would think that they wouldn't want anything to do with them. What? 
This guy tried to pay a minor to have sex with him? Well, I don't need to deal with him. I'm famous. I'm powerful. I've got my own money. I don't need to deal with him. But in this new report from the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, incredibly, some of the most prominent people in the world still met with Jeffrey Epstein after he was a convicted sex offender. So this new report from the Wall Street Journal has revealed a number of additional prominent people who appear to have been associates of Jeffrey Epstein. The people's ties to this notorious sex trafficker and longtime high society hobnobber were not previously known. They were not in Jeffrey Epstein's infamous black book or in the public flight logs of passengers who traveled aboard his private jet before his jailhouse death four years ago while awaiting trial. So the Wall Street Journal discovered the names after it obtained a previously unreported trove of documents, including thousands of emails and Epstein's private schedules dating from 2013 to 2017. This was well after Epstein pled guilty to soliciting a minor for prostitution in 2008. And at least some of the time period that the journal covers in this was after Epstein was publicly accused of sex trafficking by Virginia Giuffre in 2015. So I want you to understand what's going on. Not only at this point in Epstein's life was he already a convicted sex offender, but he had already been accused of sex trafficking other people. And yet some of the most prominent people in the world are still meeting with him. And the question I want to explore is why. Because I have a theory and I have very little basis to back this up. I'm going to tell you who we met with. But why, if you are a powerful person, a reputable person, a wealthy person, why would you ever bother with someone like Jeffrey Epstein, who is already disgraced and who is careening towards greater public disgrace? There's a lot of wealthy people out there. There's a lot of people that have more money than Jeffrey Epstein. Is it just about sniffing around and wanting to be around wealthy people? I don't think so. I think there was something else going on here, and I would love to hear your theory as to what that is. 800-848-9222. So the schedules include details of numerous meetings that Epstein planned and with whom, but the Wall Street Journal notes that they could not verify whether all the meetings actually took place. Many of the meetings did take place, and they took place at Epstein's Upper East Side townhouse, one of the locations where he is alleged to have sexually abused women and girls. So in 2019, New York Magazine published an exhaustive list of all of Epstein's alleged high society contacts. That includes people like Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Al Gore, people in politics, people in business, people in finance, people across the spectrum. But... Now, here are the new names contained in this Wall Street Journal report and what we know about how and why they were linked to them, linked to Epstein. Listen to this. Ehud Barak, the former Israeli prime minister, okay, meeting with sex offender turned future potential doubly convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. According to these documents, this longtime Israeli politician was a regular guest of Epstein's at his Upper East Side townhouse. 
reached by the Wall Street Journal, Ehud Barak acknowledged that he often visited with Epstein when visiting New York City, and that Epstein often brought other interesting persons from art or culture, law or science, finance, diplomacy, or philanthropy. Pardon me. Uh, I'm going to go on record and say I don't believe this. Ehud Barak, the former prime minister of Israel, is only meeting with Epstein because Epstein assembles a modern Algonquin roundtable, an interesting mix of people from finance, diplomacy, philanthropy, science, law, culture, and art. Please, something tells me Ehud Barak could go anywhere he wants and have a, a similarly impressive meeting. Leon Botstein, the president of Bard College, had roughly two dozen meetings scheduled with Epstein over the four years covered in these documents. Uh, This one is just amazing to me. And this feeds into what my theory is about what Epstein was up to. Who's the director of the CIA now? William Burns. William Burns was meeting with Epstein at this time. At the time, he was the uh, he was a diplomat. He was the deputy secretary of state or some similar position. And then he left to become the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he remained until Biden picked him to be CIA director. But he had three Epstein had three scheduled meetings in 2014 with William Burns the Deputy Security Sec- Secretary of State in the Obama administration. They met both in Washington, D.C. and in New York. And not just William Burns, not just the president of Bard College, not just the former prime minister of Israel, Noam Chomsky, one of the most accomplished, celebrated, best-known, best-quoted academics in history, According to these documents, Epstein arranged several meetings with Chomsky in 2015 and 2016. Now, Chomsky, it's not me calling him a name. This is how he refers to himself. Chomsky's a socialist. What is Noam Chomsky doing meeting with a guy whose sole claim to fame is that he's got a lot of money in the person of Jeff- Jeffrey Epstein? So Chomsky met with Epstein in 2015 and 2016 when he was teaching at MIT, where Epstein had donated a lot of money. Now, if you're Chomsky, not only are you uh, a tenured professor, not only are you something of a legend, but you're 80-something years old. You don't really have to meet with donors. You kind of make your own schedule. Joshua Cooper Ramo, a FedEx board member, scheduled more than a dozen meetings over the four years covered here with Epstein. Ariane de Rothschild, chairwoman of the Rothschild Group, the private Swiss bank, said only uh, this woman, by the way, who works with the Rothschild Group, falsely claimed that she had never had any ties to Epstein at all. Well, it turns out that was a blatant lie, and that's proven in these documents. Catherine Rumler the general counsel at Goldman Sachs. She's meeting with Epstein. So why are all these people meeting with Jeffrey Epstein? Well, I think we're going to have to review one of the theories that seemed crazy a couple of years ago, but I think actually may have some validity to it. In my opinion, and other people that are very bright have said other has said similar things. 
I think it's v- at least possible that Jeffrey Epstein may have been a spy or some sort of intelligence asset for either the CIA or the Mossad. Now, remember, who was Jeffrey Epstein's mentor? Robert Maxwell. Robert Maxwell, of course, is the uh, father of Jelaine Maxwell. And Maxwell, uh, Robert Maxwell, he is another guy that died very mysteriously. And there's a lot of similarities between Epstein's death in 2019 and Robert Maxwell's death in uh, November of 1991. Robert Maxwell was a British media mogul who was said to have drowned after falling from his luxurious yacht, the Lady uh, Jelaine, near the Canary Islands. Spanish police insisted no foul play was suspected in Maxwell's death, but rumors about how exactly Maxwell died have never gone away. One theory points to a possible suicide. Another claims Maxwell was assassinated by the Israeli Mossad intelligence agency for which he was secretly working. Um, Many members of the Israeli intelligence community attended Robert Maxwell's funeral. So, too, did Yitzhak Shamir, Israel's then prime minister. Shamir eulogized the British tycoon for the political connections he brought to Israel. Two years ago, while awaiting trial on sex trafficking charges, Epstein was found hanging in his jail cell at the MCC. Now, according to Julie Brown who uh, wrote a book, Julie K. Brown, Perversion of Justice, the Jeffrey Epstein story, and maybe we'll get her on uh, to talk about this. She said that there's no question Robert Maxwell had significant and deep links to the intelligence community, both in America and in Israel. And I think the question that we need to look at here is, did the now deceased and disgraced Jeffrey Epstein convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, have those same links to the Israeli intelligence community. And uh, Israeli, I mean, uh, Julie K. Brown is an investigative journalist with the Miami Herald. She's very well respected. She's not a tabloid writer. And she even says it's not beyond the realm of possibility that Epstein had connections to the Israeli intelligence community. And I wonder if that's the case. What role, if any, Did that play in his death? Because this is insane. The fact that a guy who's already become disgraced gets to meet with the guy that will be the future head of the CIA, who I think a lot of people were predicting was on the fast track to be the head of the CIA, that gets to meet with the former prime minister of Israel, that gets to meet with some of the with past and future presidents of the United States that gets to meet with presidents of colleges and universities and some of the best known academics in the world. This is to say nothing of the people in the economics world that he met with. And then the explanation from people like Ehud Barak was, well, he got a lot of interesting people together. I think this is a mystery that is only getting more mysterious. What do you think? 800, does that theory have any validity with you that Epstein was working in some capacity or another with either Israeli intelligence agencies or American ones or both? 800-848-9222. It's very interesting 
And I'll get to your calls in a moment because we have uh, a, a, we have a full show today, a lot to get to. Because there was a fellow by the name of Hoffenberg, Stephen Hoffenberg, who at one point was a, uh, I believe he was a cellmate of Epstein's. And Hoffenberg was serving 18 years in prison for committing a a Ponzi scheme, $450 million Ponzi scheme. And in the 80s, he'd been running Towers Financial, a debt collection reinsurance business, and he worked alongside Epstein. Oh, so he was a paid consultant. So he w- he wasn't in prison with Epstein. It was in the business world. So Hoffenberg told Rolling Stone about two years ago that Epstein had plans to turn Towers, that business, into a global colossus through illegal means. And Hoffenberg told the R- Rolling Stone with a grin that he represented a problem for Epstein because while they were working together, Epstein confided in him as to how exactly he made a career out of conning people and institutions, not least because the idea was that they'd do it together. Hoffenberg said, and you look, he's a convicted criminal, take it for what it's worth, that Epstein had a term for the perfect execution of the grift. He called it playing the box, which meant that he ensured that even if his crime was uncovered, the victim would be unable to do anything about it, either because of social embarrassment or because the money was tucked away in a place where they couldn't either find it or get it. What Hoffenberg had failed to realize is that Epstein would con him. He took $100 million of Tower's money, moved it offshore, and meanwhile cooperated with U.S. prosecutors against Hoffenberg, who was unable to do anything about this because he'd pled guilty, which meant there was no trial. So, according to Rolling Stone, they couldn't prove all of Hoffenberg's claims, but some of them were accurate. Epstein 100% certainly did secretly cooperate against Hoffenberg and gave at least three interviews to prosecutors. And that had the case gone to trial, then um, it likely would have turned out far worse for Epstein than for Hoffenberg because it would have blew up his spot. So, um, Hoffenberg told the Rolling Stone, he also knew something else Epstein wanted hidden. that He claimed that Epstein moved in intelligence circles. So um, when he maintained, Epstein did, that he didn't even know Hoffenberg, that Hoffenberg just consulted briefly on a couple of ideas, uh, on a couple of deals. But according to Hoffenberg, Epstein made no bones about the fact that he did run in intelligence circles. According to Rolling Stone, um, his name was mentioned, Epstein's name, was mentioned as a middleman in both Africa and the Middle East. He was known in the intelligence world as a hyper fixer, somebody who can go between different cultures and networks. So it's not completely surprising that a lot of those same sources who say they knew he was some sort of intelligence asset say that he became a liability, which is why possibly he lost any protection and was arrested and maybe even killed. What do you think? Make sense? I think this is uh, fascinating. Incredible reporting by the Wall Street Journal on this this weekend. 800-848-9222. Simon is in Brooklyn. Hello, Simon. Yeah, Frankie. Yes, how you doing? Um I think Epstein's story with the women and there's a, that small stuff, I think, was just, um, you know, they're just, you know, dismantling. 
how I understand he's a boy from Brooklyn, Seagate. He grew up in Seagate, Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn, New York. Um, he was a professional derivatives trader. Um, he worked for uh, Bear Stearns. Whatever he touched turned into gold. The guy made funds billions and billions of dollars. They fired him because they said everything you touch is always going up. How could it be? So um, he was a, a genius, and people were very impressed with his genius. He, his uh, mind was incredible, and he made a lot. Of, he made people a lot of money. That's why you have all these um, people got attached to him. You have the guy from London, you know, the, the Andrew Prince. Everyone was just wanted to be near him because he had an incredible mind and he made people billions and billions of dollars. So that could be also, you know, when someone's so successful and he's he's uh, doing great, um, you know, people want to be near him. So he, even even Bill Gates was went crazy over well, his Well, yeah, I mean, I think. It was incredible. That, that, was, yeah, Simon, thank you. you. I think that kind of proves my point. Your reference to Bill Gates, who we had known about already. Bill Gates, at various times, has been the wealthiest person in the world. He was, until recently, the wealthiest person in the world. He is one of the wealthiest people in the world. He doesn't need Jeffrey Epstein's money. He doesn't need Jeffrey Epstein's connections. Bill Gates can buy anything he wants. He can invest in anything he wants. He can give anything he wants away. So why is Bill Gates meeting with Jeffrey Epstein? I think it's about a lot more than money. I think it's about a lot more than the fact that he could make other people money. I think Jeffrey Epstein was some sort of an intelligence asset. And I think there's witnesses that back this up. I think his relationship with Robert Maxwell suggests that that's the case. I think his comments to Hoffenberg suggest that. And I think the fact that he's still meeting even after he was a convicted sex offender with people like Ehud Barak, is an indication that that's the case. 800-848-9222, Eric in Manhattan. Hello. Uh, hey, Frank. Well, so what I heard was that it was an international blackmail ring, and Ghislaine Maxwell's father was given a state funeral by the Mossad, and, um, you know, you can't, you can't blackmail everyone with child molestation or pedophilia. So, but there's always ways to get them. So it's like it's bigger than it's, it's a lot bigger than people I think generally talk about. You know. Well, so, yeah. When you uh, say it's bigger than people generally talk about, what, what do you mean it's bigger than people generally well, talk? They, they think it's all about you know, pedophilia and molesting kids. But if you're trying to run an international blackmail ring, you want you know heads of state, presidents, is that you're not, not going to get them all with a child molestation. But you know they still have lives. So you have to have other prostitutes. It's just, it's just, I don't know. People just forget it's not about that. It's bigger. You okay. Know? Yeah. Well, that's it, that's exactly. I mean, you got That's exactly what I'm saying, it, Eric. So. Uh, thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Jim and Poughkeepsie. Hello. Hey, how are you? I'm not bad. Thank you. Thanks for taking the call. So I'll try and do as slowly as I can because uh, I believe in. The fact that he was connected with those people, but it didn't happen like overnight before those people came along, meaning all the intelligence. Why the intelligence people get involved with him? Because he was a freak doing what he was doing, and he had other people that were high end, not mentioning names. I mean, all the way up to, you know, the president I'm talking about, right? Didn't everybody do all that? So, yeah, they busted him at one point, let him keep his ring going that he was doing, and he got killed because. You know, of, of everybody that was connected with him. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, but that doesn't necessarily tell us anything new, Jim. Thank you. I think, look, and it doesn't really address my, the point that I'm raising, that Epstein, I think, 
was an intelligence, if not uh, an intelligence asset for someone, either in the United States or in Israel. 800-848-9222. David is in the Bronx. Hello. Yes. Good morning, Frank. I think you're largely correct about his connections to the Israeli intelligence services and possibly the CIA. I think that Miss Maxwell's association with him is very important because of her father. A lot of people forgot that he died right after a huge financial collapse because he was running a huge scam. And Epstein's money, nobody still knows where it really came from. And there were tons of video and photos that were seized from his apartment and his island, which are now in the custody of the federal government, which will never see the light of day. So we'll never know exactly what he had on all these people. But I believe there was a huge amount of blackmail involved because when you're dealing with people like Bill Gates and the former prime minister of Israel and Bill Richardson, who you didn't mention. Well, we had already people, known about Richardson. That didn't come out. That's yeah, not okay, in this but, new trove of documents. Right. But a lot of these people, these are amoral people. A lot of them were probably involved in the same type of activities as Epstein, and he was blackmailing these people likely. And, and I'm sure the Israelis or whoever else would, would be happy to benefit from that type of information. That's classic intelligence. It, it, I believe they're called honey trap operations, and that's probably what he was doing. And like you said, once he outlived his usefulness, he miraculously managed to commit suicide when the video camera wasn't running. You tell me if that's a coincidence. I don't think Well, so. I've always found that very suspicious. Thank you, David. Now, um, all right, you've, you're welcome to comment on this if you want. 800-848-9222. I'll tell you what we're going to do. Coming up in a moment, you are going to meet a 90-year-old monologuist and performer, Holocaust survivor, who has been chronicling his life and personal journey of self-discovery on a TV show. And he's now starring in an upcoming one-man show. Fascinating man, Jan Giro, joins us straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, well, this is exciting. Joined in studio by Jan Giro, 
who is a has had many professions over the course of his life, and he is 90 years old. He's been an architect. He's been a professional dancer, a fashion designer, a documentary filmmaker, and he has been chronicling his life and his personal journey of self-discovery on a weekly TV show, and now... Breaking into a new career in his 90s, he is going to be launching a one-man show. Jan, thanks so much for joining me in studio. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So uh, tell us your your story. Uh, you uh, your, your family survived the Holocaust, and you came to the United States. No, it's a little bit different from that. Uh, I, I stayed in Europe, in Europe during the World War II, but my mother, being... Jewish, fortunately, was able to leave in 1939, about four months before the German invasion of Denmark, where she was living. She was born in Ukraine, married to a Dane. And w- so where did you remain during the war? In D- Copenhagen. In, in Copenhagen. Yeah. And then when did you come to the United States? Uh, after the Second World War, uh, and what, in, in 46. What made you come to New York City? Well, that's when my mother... With her new husband, went after she divorced my father. Got my, it. My Danish father. So, as I mentioned, you've been an architect, a professional dancer, a fashion designer, a documentary filmmaker. Uh, how come you can't seem to hold a job? Yeah. Well, it's not a question of holding a job, frankly. It's um, I'm I don't like to work with other people, frankly. I see. So I I'm a solitary kind of person, and. Uh, Architecture is a communal business, you know. You need experts in various parts of it. It isn't all design. There's also selling the job and having uh, stress analysis and uh, experts in various aspects of it. And so um, why was I a modern dancer? Well, uh, I was a solo dancer, so I was honing in on trying to connect with the universe with my voice, so to speak, so to speak. And uh, the documentary filmmaking, well, or the documentary filmmaking was, um, well, actually, it's just me and another person, one camera person, actually. She was a camera person, I was the editor, and we were, it was a love affair between us. We were both studying Argentine tango, and so uh, she had been in dance as well with the Martha Graham Company, and... uh, we liked to document other people's work in the dance world. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Jan Giro. You could check out his website at com. There's some mm. interesting videos on there, some very interesting photographs on there as well. We have a lot of listeners, Jan, who are in their late 70s, early 80s, mid-80s, and they would love to live to 90 and be as sharp and as active as you've been? I'm sure you get this question a lot. What's the secret to living to 90 and living a fulfilling life at 90? Tell me. I'd like to know myself. Well, I, I'm in no position to tell you. Well, I can, uh, I, can, I can guess at some of the things that makes it possible for me to reach the age of 90, which happened about a month ago. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. It was March 31 day before April Fool's Day, and in a way, I kind of feel like an April Fool. <laughs> I mean, I've felt a little bit that way all my life. But um, 
in terms of the first of all, I'm a vegetarian. Ah, and I've been for fifty years. No dairy either. Uh, I kind of cheat sometimes with goat uh, cheese. Goat cheese, got it. But otherwise, no oat milk or soy milk, and uh, no yogurt or regular cow's milk or other types of cheeses. And no all. seafood. No. No seafood. No, no. But I mean, it, it happened in stages. I started probably at the time when my father died at arteriosclerosis. And um, Denmark is a dairy country, so um, I attributed one of the reasons for his death to that. At, at, at that time, they didn't have the stent technology, so he died. And both of my half-brother and half-sister that live in Denmark have stent. And I, three days ago, got a stent. In oh. My, in one it doesn't look body. like it slowed you down a bit at all. Well... I mean, okay, so uh, on the exercise level, I've been very persistent. And uh, one of the instruments I like in particular that I think have been useful, the spine is a very important part of the human body besides the organs. And I use what's called a, um, what the hell is it called? <laughs> a, um, I can't even remember, it's a... The table inversion oh, table. Oh, okay, an inversion table. So I've I heard hang, good things about an inversion table. So I hang by my ankles, usually for about eight minutes. <laughs> That's quite a sight. I can. I'd, uh, you do this every day, eight minutes uh, uh, hanging upside down every day? Normally, but uh, I just had that procedure done last Wednesday, so I'm not going to invert myself. I did actually today, but I stayed off it. I, I uh, did have just four minutes today, but... Normally I do eight. That's very impressive. Well, so, there, there are movements in the spine that you need to do while you're hanging there. I mean, it's just hanging. Uh, yeah, I would think that gets a little monotonous for eight minutes, just hanging upside down. Uh, talking with Jan Giro, we're going to tell you how you can see uh, him in an upcoming show that's starting at the end of this month. Now, you are a big advocate of journaling. I know a lot of the mm. journaling that you do takes the form of video journaling, mm. but do you keep a conventional print paper journal as well? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. But uh, as you were just pointing out, that about 12 years, I was keeping a text journal. I've written, believe it or not, approximately 40 journal books that cover all the years from starting in 1960. But um, uh, from the documentary filmmaking, you know, I had some uh, abilities in terms of filming myself. I turned the camera on me myself. I'm my own technician. I put the camera on a, on a bookcase and I face it and I stand there and I talk um, for about uh, 30 minutes every week. And that lands on a... Um, on Manhattan Neighborhood Network. It's a public access station. Right, and uh, yeah, so it's a very well-regarded public access uh, channel. I've done stuff on there, and because it's Manhattan, it has a very wide viewership, even though it's mm. just considered public access. So you do this show, it's called The Compulsive New Yorker, yes. and you basically just riff about what you've done and are doing. Well, I, I try to stay away from what's external to my life, Try to call, get on the pathway to my internal journey. If someone wants to start journaling, mm. would you suggest they start with text? Would they start with video, audio, combination of all three? What would you suggest? Any one of the three. 
audio, actually, I would think is one of the best because there's less editing involved, for example. I mean, if, unless you just produce, you don't edit it at all. I mean, I, I edit all my work, whether it's video or audio, in various different ways. Sometimes I'm a little hoarse. Sometimes I may be a little ill and I cough. I cut that. And if I clear my throat, <clears throat> I cut that down, down, a couple of dB, dBs. And when I chuckle, I up it a little bit so that I feel, look more, sound more cheerful. <laughs> so, <laughs> Instead of... <laughs> you started doing this TV show around the age of 80 then, right? Yes, right. that's right. It's 12 years ago. What made you, even though you were getting a lot out of journaling, which you've been doing for the last 50, 60 years, what made you want to put that on television for other people to see? Well, <clears throat> it wasn't so much that I wanted to put it on television. It's just that I, be, I began getting a little too... I mean, my major goal is really for a certain type of visibility, even though I'm kind of living in my own closet and always or usually working by myself. But um, as I am in the last stage of my life, I'm a, the yearning for visibility became more important, and that's why I try to find a placement on MNN, for example, and other things. So you're an introvert that doesn't want to interact with many people at all, but <laughs> wants to be seen by as many people as possible, essentially. Yeah, yes, I yeah, love it. I love, I love the walking uh, contradiction. I, I'm a bundle of contradictions myself. So now you're launching this new show at the end of this month, a one-man show called Naked at 90. What's it about? What are you doing in this show? What are people going to see? Well, the first thing I'm going to be dealing with is what I mean by naked. I mean, I, I, I do mean actually the literal nady, na naked at some point. But it's particularly the paraphrasing of what naked means. It means to be transparent about what I feel and that other people will be able to witness an authentic, person who doesn't pretend to be one thing or another. But you're actually going to be naked during the show itself. Well, don't say that too no? much. Okay. There will be a moment at the very end. This will be a surprise. I will actually. If people want to see, uh, if people want to see the show, uh, what's the best way for them to, go, to do that? Should they go to your website? Well, that's one place. The website, there's a ticket option there. It's uh, J-A-N-G-E-R-O.com. Yeah. And then there's also on social media. Uh, a media platform called Naked at 90. Now, that's the word naked and the word at, A-T, and the number 90. So people should search on social media for Naked at 90. Yes, please. If this goes well in New York where you're kicking things off, do you see this expanding to other cities? Not other cities, no. No. Oh, well, it's a possibility, but I mean, it takes energy to, when you're over 90 years old to move anywhere. I, I can imagine. That, that's why, I mean, I give you credit for wanting to do this show at 90. Yes. And uh, I, you know, can certainly appreciate the desire to want to be seen and heard by others. But I, I do wonder at what point the that's worth all the time, attention, energy, and I'm sure money that it involves putting a show on like this. True. So what drives you to keep doing this at 90? Well, uh, in, in some ways, 
I'm sorry to put it this way, um, I, uh, I identified you, too. And um, like in America, Afro-Americans, we were or have been for 2,000 years a marginalized uh, um, cultural group, at least. I'm not religious. And I'm kind of vowing to be standing the longest, <laughs> outlive all the people around me, at least the people who have known me. Well, I think that's phenomenal. So the show is called Naked at 90. Uh, people can search Naked at 90 on social media or they can go to the website com. Jan, you're a remarkable guy, and uh, it's a real pleasure to meet you in person. Best of luck with the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you want to comment, you certainly can. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. greatest songwriter, internationally known as a folk rock legend, unfortunately passed away yesterday at the age of 84. You know, he had the kind of career going uh, over 50 years that uh, people only dream about. I mean, he really had a, a phenomenal career, not only this song, but uh, the you know many, many others. Uh, rainy Day People, right? Uh, so, uh, sorry to hear about his passing. I, I didn't know much about Gordon Lightfoot. I listened to some of his songs once in a while, but, um, I didn't know too much about him as a person, but look, you can't argue. I've always said for years that whatever field of the public eye you're talking about, one of the most difficult things is longevity. And if you can demonstrate longevity then that's a pretty impressive thing. And um, Gordon Lightfoot certainly did that. So if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this program, you could join our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. In fact, you know what we'll do? You know, one of the things I always find um, interesting is people that have managed to make pretty impressive career comebacks. And what we've done a lot before on this program is we've explored the best comebacks of all time in the world of politics, in the world of uh, acting, in the world of sports, whatever. But you know what we'll do next hour? And we have a lot of great guests. Uh, Tony LoBianco is going to be here. And uh, we're going to also talk with Jessica Taco, who's a lobbyist that represents MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, 
and she's going to tell us what she's doing on Washington D.C. in Washington D.C. on Capitol Hill to sort of get the ball moving forward in terms of uh, legislation related to UFOs, which they now call UAPs. But I think at the top of next hour, what I'd love to do, and so I'm going to give you 10 minutes to think about it, is tell me who you'd like to see in any field, doesn't matter what it is, who you'd like to see make a comeback. You know, people that have been, have done very well in certain fields, but they, I don't know, whatever, they're not doing as well now as they once did. Who would you love to see make a comeback? doesn't matter the field. It could be radio, pro wrestling, acting, whatever the case may be. So you could start. you got 10 minutes to think about it. 800-848-9222. Yesterday was a banner day in the Murano household because our cat, Melchizedek, who we will often call uh, Melky for short, our cat Melchizedek celebrated his 14th birthday. And he's he's getting a little long in the tooth. Now, we have three cats. We have one, Bathsheba, who's delightful, who will, um, she will be as friendly as can be to anyone. Um. And she'll, you're a perfect stranger. She'll lick you and rub up against you and ask you to pat her uh, just as she would Rachel or me. Then we have Prissy, who will occasionally let Rachel pet her. She doesn't let me or anyone else pet her. She will immediately run out of the room if you stand up while she's in the room. She is very skittish. She, she gets along with the other cats, but she does not get along with people. And then we have Melchizedek. He gets along well with Rachel. He gets along well with me. He gets along well with Prissy. He gets along kind of okay with Bathsheba, although they do a lot of fighting. Other than that, he doesn't want to be bothered. That's his reputation as long as I've known him. He scratched a lot of people over the years. You pet him the wrong way or make a move the wrong way, he will swat you like Wolverine. He has, you know, he has diabetes. He's the cat that we give insulin to twice a day. He has slowed down a couple of, uh, uh, majorly in the last couple of years. He is now much more gentle than he used to be. He's not the kind of fire-breathing dragon ready to swat at you and bite you and and scratch you that he used to be. So he's now chilled out a great deal. So we celebrated his 14th birthday yesterday. And now again, my wife had him before before she knew me and before she had uh, Carmine. So she has he has predated our relationship by many years. I think we've been together for all told. What year is it now? It's 2023. I think we've been together since December of 2015. So they were together almost twice as long as we've been together. So uh, he he is very special to her. So we had a 14th birthday party. We didn't actually have a party, but we did give him tuna. And we gave all the cats tuna in honor of Melky's birthday. I thought we should do something fun because I've become quite accustomed. I've become quite fond of the cat as well because how often do you turn 14, especially He's had a lot of health challenges over the years. He now doesn't even have many teeth left. So he swallows his cat food, for the most part, whole, 
without really chewing it because he doesn't have many teeth left. So when he vomits, which is pretty frequently, to be honest, you wake up in the morning. We came home from Atlantic City over the weekend on Sunday afternoon. There were little mounds of vomit in different places around the house, cat vomit. When he vomits, he vomits almost the food. It looks like it hasn't even been eaten because he just vomits it up whole because he can't really chew much. So he just swallows it. So I feel bad for him. So I thought we should do something fun. But what do you really do for a cat's birthday? Especially a cat that's sort of antisocial and only only likes two people. So my wife gave them tuna. And we, uh, I think she sang happy birthday to him while I was still asleep. And then he will come in bed with me sometimes while I'm sleeping during the day. And usually I'll kick him out so I could get some sleep. So yesterday I didn't kick him out. I let him stick around there and uh, do his thing. But, um, you know, I don't think that that metric that they used to use all the time, that cat years are the, the equivalent of seven human years. I don't think that holds true anymore but what does hold true is that 14 is old for a cat so uh hopefully he's around for a while uh and uh, we're wishing him the best all right hey if you want to find me on twitter you can do so at frank morano that's frank m-o-r-a-n-o on tuesdays we usually do the mail next hour but because we have jessica taco here we're going to do the mail in the final hour of the program after the $1,000 minute. So if you want to email me and get your comment read on the radio, by the way, if you email me, just assume your comment will be read on the radio. Do not send me an email and say, I can't believe you read that. I gave you my most private, intimate, um, you know, analysis of something. No, if you email me, assume it will be read on the radio. My email is frank.morano at redapple.com. Uh, at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. You can also just send me a direct message on Twitter at Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. I got some fun messages that people have sent me. And occasionally I'll get to some SMS text messages as well. You can send me an SMS text message at 816-8-MORANO. That's 816 816- Eight M O R A N O. Very excited to ta- talk with uh, Tony Lobianco. You know he's in that new Ray Romano movie that uh, Debbie Schlussel gave a very poor review to on uh, Friday morning. But I, I would imagine Tony, since he's promoting the movie and uh, is doing his thing now, I would imagine he has a very different take on the film than. Uh, then we uh, th- then we've heard from Debbie Schlussel. So we'll see where that goes. All right. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. And we will get to your calls. And I'd love to ask you the question who you would like to see make a comeback. Doesn't matter the field. I made a list so far. I've got six people. But during the next couple of minutes, I'm going to try and come up with I'm gonna try and come up with 10. And I'll give you my people that I'd love to see. Make a comeback as well. Hey, by the way, I posted on uh, Twitter yesterday, and you can find me on Twitter, at Frank Morano, this really great William Shatner video that was made of him back on the set of The Enterprise. It was made by Dave Blass, who's the production designer for Star Trek Picard. It's really cool. 
if you're a Star Trek fan, it's definitely worth uh, worth checking out. So I tweeted that yesterday. You could find it, and it's a, it's a fun video. At least I think it's fun. Uh, at Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. All right. Who do you want to see make a comeback? Eight open lines. They're, they're all yours. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, who's probably getting a little old for a comeback, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. big deal they made after uh, Quentin Tarantino made Pulp Fiction. What was the story after Pulp Fiction? It wasn't just that a great film had come out. It was that uh, Quentin Tarantino had given John Travolta his comeback film. And then he did the same thing with Jackie Brown and Robert Forster. Gave him an incredible comeback film. And throughout history, whatever history we're talking about, anything in the public eye, There have been all these comebacks. Nixon, probably the greatest political comeback in history. Great book about it by Pat Buchanan called, of all things, The Greatest Comeback. Probably in religious history, the greatest comeback of all time has got to be the Pope. You know, we've seen around the world, not the Pope, uh, Jesus coming back from the dead. We've seen around the world a whole bunch of world leaders get ousted from power or leave power and then come back. We're seeing it in Brazil right now with Lula. Not only did he leave the presidency, but then he was arrested, went to prison, came back, got elected. We saw this with uh, Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, his government, not, not in the majority anymore. Then he comes back after being charged with corruption. He's able to come back as prime minister. A very impressive political comeback. Winston Churchill in Great Britain, the same thing. Grover Cleveland in this country. Donald Trump is is trying a similar political comeback. And in looking at, I still haven't seen The Whale yet, but the story of The Whale, which was a film that came out last year starring Brendan Fraser, was really a Brendan Fraser story. And it was a story about Brendan Fraser, who in the 90s was one of the biggest stars in the world. He was doing The Mummy. He was doing Airheads, which is a great picture. I still love. He was doing George of the Jungle. I think he did Encino Man. He did all sorts of pictures. And then he basically disappeared. He couldn't get arrested. 
He came back and he won an Academy Award last year or this year, I guess, for his role in The Whale. My goodness. Um, I thank the Academy for this honor and for our studio, A24, for making such a bold film. And I'm grateful to Darren Aronofsky for throwing me a creative lifeline and hauling me aboard the good ship, The Whale, that was written by Samuel D. Hunter, who is our lighthouse. Gentlemen, you laid your whale-sized hearts bare so that we could see into your souls like no one else could do. And it is my honor to be named alongside you in this category. Even though I had not seen the film, I was really rooting for Brendan Fraser because I think like a lot of people, I love a good comeback story. I love a comeback story. There's look, I think as far as I can tell, this lying congressman, George Santos, is a total degenerate liar. And he's also now voting like he represents, you know, uh, I don't know. Wyoming in Congress, not necessarily yeah, not necessarily Long Island. But there's a part of me that would love to see George Santos win re-election next year. Now, I don't. Not a, not a big part of me. But there's a part of me. I Because there's just something. I don't know what it is. There's just something that is so fun and so charming and so romantic about a comeback in any field. And that Brendan Fraser situation reminded me of Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke in the 80s was the biggest star there was. The guy was a heartthrob. The guy was considered great looking, great actor. He was he was beating away movie offers with a stick. He was doing Pope of Greenwich Village. He did Diner, film after film, I think uh, seven and a half weeks. The guy was untouchable. And then he made a lot of very poor career film, uh, c- career choices, becoming a uh, professional fighter at some point. That didn't work out too well for him. And the guy quickly delved down into obscurity. Well, with The Wrestler, he made a phenomenal picture and made a just a great comeback. He actually won the Golden Globe for Best Actor back in 2009. There's been a, a very long road back for me, and uh, I'm not a really good public speaker. I was kind of hoping uh, Robert Downey come up here and talk for me a little bit. Uh, but anyway, uh, several years ago, I was almost out of this business, and uh, a young man kind of got in touch with me, and he kind of put his whole career uh, on the line by representing me and saying he wanted to, you know, represent me, and uh, he did a hell of a job, so I want to thank David Unger for having the balls, and and, uh, I want to thank his his boss at ICM, uh, Jeff Berg, for not putting him back in the mailroom, and... uh, and I work with a, a really special director that had to uh, really fight hard for me to be in this movie because he couldn't get no money on my name. 
And uh, Darren Aronofsky, I, I, I've said this. You know, I've said this before, every, uh, in like sports especially, which I can relate to, really great uh, players or directors, they come around every 30 years, and I, I really truly believe that Darren is one of those cats, and uh, it's just such a, he, he brought the best out of me, and uh, he hates it when I say he's tough, but he is, uh, he is one tough son of a bitch, and if, uh, and if uh, you're not, you're... <laughs> And if you're not in shape, the man will bring you down, because I always say he's smarter than the rest of us. Maybe not Steven, but, you know. Uh. So I thought that was really charming. And by the way, I misspoke a minute ago. The film that uh, Mickey Rourke did with Kim Basinger was not, I think I said seven and a half weeks. It was nine and a half weeks. I'm aware of that. I misspoke. Bear with me. All right. So I made a list of people in a few different fields, radio, Politics, music, acting, wrestling, sports that are something other than wrestling, cable news, and filmmaking. I made a list of people that I'd love to see make a comeback. Now, some of these people are still active. Some of them are not. Uh, The ones that are still active, they are certainly not enjoying the kind of success that they did when they were in the prime of their careers. But... I would love to know who you'd like to see make a comeback. Doesn't matter the field. It could be anything. It could be business. It could be cable news. It could be talk radio. It could be uh, literature. That's the one thing I couldn't come up with a lot of good answers for is writing. It could be literature. It could be podcasting, whatever the case may be. It could be any field. Um, uh, so I made a list of, let's see, uh, 17 people, 17 people that I would love to see make a comeback. Who would you like to see make a comeback? I'm going to give you mine. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin because this is probably the most difficult because of the ages involved here. You know, if you're an actor, you can make a comeback at 50 or 55 or 60 or 65, whatever the case may be. You can't do that as a baseball player. You can't do that for the most part as a professional football player. So in the world of sports, the two that came immediately to mind, one was the Dark Knight, Matt Harvey. I would love to see Matt Harvey make a successful comeback Mm -hmm. and make it back to the major leagues. It would be such a fitting coda. To his story, and I just would love to see it. I think it would be great. I and and the the other person that I'm about to suggest this might bode well for them too. But there's a great independent league team, the Ferry Hawks, that are that's owned by John Katsimatidis, the owner of our network. And I'd love to see Matt Harvey come pitch for the Ferry Hawks. A lot of people have done that. They've they've stayed sharp while playing for an independent league team. And then made it back to the major leagues. Um, if Ricky Henderson, for instance, played for the Newark Bears. Jose Canseco played for independent league teams. Pete Incavilia. Some of them made it back to the major leagues. Some of them did not. Uh, Frank Viola, I believe, also did that. A couple other people. Fernando Valenzuela, I think, did. So I, um, I'd love to see if we can't get Matt Harvey back on a major league team, maybe get him for an independent league team. I mean, how much fun would that be? And here's my other person in sports that I'd love to see make a comeback. 
whether it's in football or baseball or something else. The person I'd love to see make a comeback in the world of sports is Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow struck me as such a great guy. He was, of course, the Denver Broncos quarterback in their playoff run, and then he became sort of celebrated in some quarters, denigrated in others for praying on the field. He would genuflect and do the sign of the cross. But he struck me as such a great guy. And then, look, the fact of the matter is he probably was and is not an NFL-quality quarterback. And he was not able to cut it as an NFL quarterback. And so what he would try to do is year after year, he would try to make a comeback in the world of baseball. And he had some moments in the minor leagues, not good enough to be a major league player at the moment. But he just I gave him so much credit for the fact that he kept trying year after year after year. And um, I think that was really admirable. And I'd love to see him make some sort of a comeback in sports. There's another person I would love to see play for the Ferry Hawks. So those are my sports picks. I have cable news. I have filmmaking. I have physical fitness. I have pro wrestling. I have acting. I have music. I have politics. I have radio. Let me hear yours. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Plays, you have anything for our list here? Yeah, I was thinking of wrestlers. Because of the way wrestling works now, it's like the champ, you're a champion for six months, and then you're forgotten about. Right, right, exactly. And I was thinking about this wrestler, Dolph Ziggler, who was the champion like 10 years ago, and he still wrestles. He's still in great shape. They have him on the main shows of Raw and SmackDown, and he loses every match. And I'm like, this guy was, a, was the champion at one time. How do you have him now losing every match? It makes no sense to me. So I'm like, why don't they give him a comeback? How can you be so relevant that they actually put the company on your back and now you just lose all the time? Well, what was the story there? Why did they why did they give him less of a push than he was getting? I don't know because remember there was a point in time of wrestling where I didn't watch as much. Right, right. Me too. I, the, that, that was a right. time that I didn't So that watch. was a time that I didn't watch, but I know that even when he comes out now, like he was a three-time world champion. I'm like, well, why is he losing every match? Could you imagine if, like, in the 90s, Hulk Hogan went out there and lost every match? Or guys that were big in the 80s? They became bigger, or, or they became classic uh, legends. And this guy's just like a nobody now. Well, you know, it's funny. They were going to do that with... Um, they were going to do that reportedly. I mean, who knows what's true, but they were going to do that... With Ric Flair in the WWF at the time, and that's one of the reasons uh, they were going to make him what they call a jobber to the stars as a uh, as a babyface, and that's one of the reasons that um, he made the decision to go back to WCW because if you turn one of the greatest world champions of all time into a jobber, even a jobber to the stars, that would of course not be fair to Flair. Yeah. Fair to Flair the way, is the way to do it. If you don't want to be fair to Flair, then do it the way you're doing. But if you really want to be fair to Flair, to be fair to Flair, that's don't the way to do start it. with a fair to Flair. <laughs> Uh, every time you know who Uh, else that happened to um randy savage because remember he was was they made him basically into another well so that's what those guys did that was the the recourse they had was to go to another federation right and he he wanted to wrestle and they didn't want him to wrestle mcmahon didn't want him to wrestle so they forget i'm going to go to wcw which is what he did and they roddy piper they tried to do that with as well so uh dolph ziggler who's your other one 
Uh, I, I couldn't think of oh, anyone could, else. Okay. I could think of a lot of comebacks, but not really anyone. <clears throat> well, so that's the thing. Is predicting or rooting for the next comeback is always the more challenging. So here, look, obviously Donald Trump is an obvious one. A lot of people are rooting for a Trump comeback. He sort of never really went away. So I don't know if you could really call it a comeback. But if, I know a lot of people are going to call it a comeback. Fine. In the world of politics, there were three names that I came up with. One fell is a little older, but I put him on my list anyway. Former Republican congressman from New York, John Laboutier. Love John Laboutier. That's a man that should be in elective office. I'd love to see him come back. Former Democrat turned independent mayor of Las Vegas, Oscar Goodman, whose wife is now the mayor of Las Vegas. I'd love to see him come back either as mayor of Las Vegas or governor of Nevada or something else. Evan Bayh, former senator from Indiana, Democrat from Indiana. I'd love to see him come back. I have a few others, uh, and then we're going to get to Jessica Taco, but I want to hear yours. Charlie in Hell's Kitchen, who do you have? Uh, Rudy Giuliani, I'd like to see him come back because there's obviously a crime situation in New York. You were talking about the other night, you thought it was uh, exaggerated by TV or whatever, but I, I disagree. I think... If this crime situation in New York isn't taking control of if they don't get the bull by the horn, so to speak, I think we could lose a quarter to a third of our most productive population in the, over the next five years. And I was wondering, what do you think? Well, look, I don't – thank you, Charlie. Look, I love Rudy Giuliani. He's got no bigger fan than me. I don't see him getting elected in the New York City of today. I think his politics have shifted a bit rightward from where the population is, and he's been so closely associated with Donald Trump, who's not popular in New York City for the most part. I think it would be – I don't. I think it's impossible for him to get elected today. I also think the population has gotten more leftward, and there's not the same kind of crisis there was when Giuliani was elected back in 93. Here are the two in music that I like. Rick Astley. From never going to give you up and Rick Rolling fame. The guy is still young. The guy can still sing. The guy is poised for a comeback. That's a comeback I'd love to see. The other one, I mentioned this, uh, something like this when he was on this show, and it seems like he focuses on a lot of other things now, like poetry and photography or other things. Joe Dolce, who recorded the greatest song of all time, which I believe he wrote as well, Shut Up You Face. Uh, historians will say that is the greatest song of all time. And Joe Dolce is primed for a comeback. The guy, when he was on this show, was very energetic, very funny, very quick-witted. So those are my two in the world of music. I'll give you my two acting comebacks in a minute. 800 Robert is in Suffolk. What do you have for us, Robert? Hi, I've got Ray Romano. But he's got a movie out now, somewhere in Queens. Well, I mean, he did a kind of TV comedy that was, like, wholesome, family values, not really politics and stuff. You know, it was really refreshing. Yeah, I hear you. And he's in this film now, and we're going to talk about the, Thank you. Yeah, we're going to talk about... And this could be his comeback vehicle, right? Because he had a heart procedure, and if he's able to make a big hit with this film... That with Laurie Metcalf and Tony LoBianco, we're going to talk about this in uh, the next hour. Then maybe this will be his comeback vehicle. I'm not sure he's on the doldrums of show business like some of the other people that I'm talking about, either because of their choosing or because the sensibilities of show business have moved elsewhere. Here are two in the world of acting that I like. Number one, and this was the first one that I thought of, this man must make a comeback. 
This man is a national treasure in two countries. This man, every day that he is not making movies, is a day that we as a populace are worse off. Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis absolutely must make a comeback. He has not really done a film in years, done a couple of appearances here and there. He needs to make a comeback and needs to be greeted with the same degree of fanfare and um, celebration that Mickey Rourke was and that, uh, and that um, you know, the other fellow, uh, Brendan Fraser was. The other one that I'll mention in the world of acting is Ben Savage. Uh, in radio, I like Jay Diamond and Richard Bay. In the world of wrestling, I like Ken Shamrock and The Rock. In the world of cable news, I like Dylan Radigan and Matt Drudge. In the world of directing, I like Whit Stillman, the Wasp Woody Allen. And in the world of physical fitness, I like Richard Simmons. All right, we're going to talk aliens with Jessica Taco. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. Midnight in the desert, shooting stars across the sky. other side of midnight and i have enjoyed discussing and learning about the uap issue for a long time one thing that we've covered a little bit but not necessarily gotten into in much depth is why they call the objects we see in the sky but can't explain why do they call them uaps Instead of UFOs. Well, I'm joined now by somebody that might be able to answer that. She has also been a warrior and a leader in terms of the mainstreaming of this issue. Not long ago, 20, 25, 30 years ago, if you were to talk about flying saucers, that was something that was relegated only to the annals of late night radio and borderline science fiction, cheap literature. Well, now, not only is this a subject that is covered seriously by mainstream news outlets, CNN, Fox News, 60 Minutes, The New York Times, The Washington Post, but it's something that is taken very seriously by Congress. And one of the people responsible for that has been Jessica Taco. She is the chief executive officer at A10 Associates. Jessica, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I know it's early. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell people, what exactly is A10 Associates? What do you guys do? 
And so we are the largest women-owned lobbying firm in the United States. And we focus, we are bipartisan, and we focus on transportation, technology, and infrastructure. And we're able to be bipartisan because we focus on issues that unite both sides of the aisle, one of which happens to be the UAP issue. So I mentioned uh, that, especially over the last five or six years, there's been congressional hearings on this, and this is now a very mainstream issue. You don't have to feel embarrassed if you bring up UAPs or uh, things of that nature. People aren't going to think you are drunk or hallucinating if you talk about seeing something in the night sky. Why has this issue become so much more mainstream than it was 15 or 20 years ago? Uh, Well, I'd like to give ourselves a little bit of credit for that, but I'll definitely say we represent an organization called MUFON. They are the Mutual UFO Network. They have 6,000 members worldwide, and they're in over – they're in 47 countries. They're in all 50 states, and they get about 12,000 sightings a year. So we started working with them a little over five years ago. And one of our main goals, and if you look at MUFON's website, they talk about the study of UFOs for the betterment of humanity. And one of our main goals was to start rebranding the concept of UFO to UAP, which is Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, in order to take away the stigma of UFOs. The stigma of UFO goes all the way back to the 1940s. Which, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Finish finish your thought. Which many people believe um, on the UFO, uh, that believe in UFOs, that it was actually the federal government um, that stigmatized the UFO concept starting in the 1940s in order to um, hide any possible belief in UFOs uh, and to really encourage uh, citizens in the United States not to be fearful. So the whole concept was um, supposedly put together in order to uh, get people not to believe in UFOs, to get people to think it's so crazy it couldn't be real. Um, But over the last five years, we've really worked to rebrand this issue in a bipartisan way so people can talk about it. Why would the federal government, in your view, want to withhold the truth from the public in the 1940s. Why would they want this issue to be something that was considered a fringe issue and not a mainstream one back then? So there are many theories on the topic, um, but from what I understand, we had just gotten through World War One, World War Two, the Depression. Um, we were on the heels, we were on, or we were on the dawn of the uh, Cold War, There was the rise of communism coming around the world, and there was a lot of unrest. People were really scared. People were concerned. So the concept of UFO, whether it be from other worlds or whether it be from Russia, um, was something that was really scary for the populace. Mm. Imagine, Imagine if Roswell was the Russians. How scary would it have been at that time that the Russians were in our airspace in craft that we could not shoot down? And imagine if somehow, if hypothetically it was um, beings from another world, 
how scary, how much unrest that would have caused. And there are many theories that when the World of the Worlds um, was actually played on the radio, um, when people talk about um, all the UFOs that were coming on the West Coast at that time, um, that the government was was using Disney, um, using the news, to uh, using even shows like Star Trek um, to try to grapple with what society was going to think about this phenomenon that was in fact happening um, even much before the 1940s. That's uh, very interesting. You said quite a bit there, but the one part I want to hone in on, because I am a Star Trek fan and I've heard this before from everyday people and from, you know, from experts that have studied this, this stuff is there's a possibility that the government was actually, our government, the U.S. government, was actually using Star Trek, which began airing in 1966, as a way of essentially preparing the public to accept the fact that UFOs, which we now call UAPs, were a regular part of of what we were experiencing here on Earth. There's some, there's some truth to that? That many, many alien theorists believe that that is truthful. Um, there were, there is evidence um, that Disney, uh, as was meeting with NASA, um, meeting with members of the government as they were putting together Star Trek, even photos you can watch, um, videos of Walt Disney um, actually meeting with those folks, but as well as um, meeting with folks around the space program. Um, and putting together shows about the launch and landing on the moon. So um, there was a concerted effort of some sort, um, whether, again, uh, there are theories that it was related to extraterrestrials. Um, There are also theories in in other books that that allege that um, there was such an intense Cold War going on that um, UFOs were floated out there as a cover-up for the Cold War. Mm. Um, And so that was pushed out there um, because it was determined that it was less scary um, for there to be this, you know, theories about these crazy aliens than um, Russians in our airspace. But at the same time, there are theories that um, that the Cold War was a cover-up for us trying to catch up to alien technologies. Wow. So just so people understand what your group does, and we're talking, if people are just tuning in with Jessica Taco, she's the CEO at A10 Associates. So basically you're a lobbying firm, and one of your clients is MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. Correct. And, and you, Go ahead. And the way that we got involved in the legislation um, around UAP and UFO um, was actually fascinating. So... Um, Senator Gillibrand from New York, she's on the Defense Committee. Um, she has been a huge advocate for service members who've had um, sexual trauma and other traumas in the military that they needed to report. So um, about five years ago, we started engaging her office, and her initial interest in the topic was that members of the military were being ridiculed, losing their job. Um, having different harms come to them because they were reporting UFOs. And she wanted to relieve that stigma um, in in partnership with us and other groups so that service members would be able to report things that could be matters of national security. 
So that's how all this started coming together five years ago. Wow. Wow. I didn't realize that that was the genesis of it. Now, you mentioned your role, your group's role in rebranding the classification of these objects from UFO to UAP because of the stigma that surrounds the UFO, the the term UFO. Why do that? Why not just keep allowing people to uh, to use the term UFO? What's to be gained by calling these objects UAPs rather than UFOs? So we honestly evaluated traditional branding exercises just like you do um, when you start a new company or when you rebrand a company. And what we found was that um, you you were not seeing the term UFO um, get coverage on Fox News, get mm. coverage on CNN. It just was not getting coverage. And um, mainstream reporters, when they were seeing that term, were just clicking delete in their inbox. Um, we also found from speaking to multiple members of Congress on both sides of the aisle um, that there was a feeling on the House and the Senate bipartisan that the federal government was hiding from these elected officials. And we're talking about officials that aren't just senators and congressmen, but those that are on the defense committees and the Homeland Security and Intelligence Committees. So they have clearance. Their staff have clearance. And they were getting shut out over and over and over. But as elected officials, they didn't want to say UFO because that stigma, which the federal government developed, as we talked about, um, in order to make this a taboo issue, um, that stigma was something that political leaders were just not comfortable coming out on. But once we started calling it UAP, and we found that many members of Congress were willing to speak out. For example, Senator Marco Rubio. He is a co-author with this bill with Gillibrand. When are Gillibrand and Rubio on a bill together? Yeah, uh, this is still shut out. This is the only instance that that I'm aware of uh, with that being the case. So um, now, I, obviously, I know when you're a lobbying firm, you take on the interests of your clients that hire you, and you advocate fiercely on your behalf, on their behalf. But is there any doubt in your view that these sightings and uh, whether it's the well-publicized videos that we saw of the naval pilots off the coast of the uh, USS Nimitz in San Diego or any of the many other videos that we've that we've seen or photographs that we've seen, is there any doubt in your view that these objects are, in fact, real? I 100 percent believe that they're real, especially if they're coming from government uh, videos. And, you know, I think that poses a very interesting risk. Again, MUFON, we don't, when we say UAP, and this is an interesting fact, uh, 92% of what MUFON identifies, so we have um, hundreds of thousands of records of, of UFO and UAP going back to the 1940s. 92% of what we identify, we can rule out. We can say it's a weather balloon, it's a kite, it's a drone. 8% we can't. And we use photo um, data forensics, photo forensics, experts on the topic um, to come in and evaluate. Um, we've had contracts with ATIP and the federal government even to send our records and our evaluation on UAP that they're interested in. 
So it was a very credible organization. 92% we can rule out, but 8% we can't. And even the federal government is starting to say there are things that they can't rule out in these hearings. So, you know, I believe one one factor is that these UAP could be our um, technology. You know, one thing we see as lobbyists is that the government invests in a lot of technology. They're probably 20 years ahead of what's commercialized. And the reason for that is that if a, if a product, whether it be a plane or a drone, isn't going to be profitable in the marketplace for these publicly traded companies, it won't get commercialized. So the government could, in fact, have flying saucers or something like that. But Boeing, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, there's no reason for them to be producing them and making them mainstream if they're not able to be sold. Right. The right. other issue is – go ahead. No, no, please. Continue. And the other, the other issue is they could be foreign. They could be Chinese. Um, I think a lot of us thought they could. They were Russian until we saw how much Russia is struggling with Ukraine. Um, they could be private sector. We've seen how Elon Musk and um, Jeff Bezos can invest in technology and, and compete with what the federal government has. Um, so they could be those things, but there is also a chance that they could be otherworldly beings. So those possibilities, uh, something otherworldly, something our own government is doing, something a foreign government is doing, something the private sector is doing, that's really why it's so important, because as Rubio and others have pointed out, this is potentially a national security issue if this is some sort of foreign government or something along those lines with this kind of technology uh, showing sorts of the sort of propulsion that we that, that's not known to us at this point. And I know you've been responsible for briefing several members of Congress in advance of these UAP hearings. Have you found, I know you alluded to uh, Gillibrand and and, uh, Senator Rubio, but have you found that members of Congress are willing to listen with an open mind, or do most of them tend to have their mind made up one way or another on this question, Jessica? So, uh, absolutely. I have been surprised. So, I've been a lobbyist for 20 years. This is the most bipartisan issue I've ever had. And we have no, we have had members of Congress that I, I don't want to mention their name because we're being confidential that have seen things that have had their own sightings. Mm. Um, we have had multiple members of Congress on both sides of the aisle who have clearances try to get this information from the government and be turned down. So that has created the appearance of improprieties, I believe. To them that why can't anyone share this information with me? Um, and so I, I believe that these members of Congress are elected and they feel entitled to know. And they, and they are entitled to know they are elected officials. And the federal government treats them like they're a temporary employee. And, that, and, and they will brush it off and brush it off and brush it off. Um, even in these hearings we've had, um, you know, we, we we came together four years ago. We started working on the NDAA. Um, the Gillibrand Amendment was what created the UAP Task Force, um, which instructed Congress uh, now three years ago. Um, Congress instructed the DOD to send them a quarterly report on UAP. 
DOD is still not sending a mm-hmm. timely quarterly report. It's redacted to the point that it's useless. Um, they just now, uh, Congress gave them more money, and more directives to compel them um, last year to do something. So they just now um, transitioned to an AARO, which is an all anormally uh, reporting office um, from a UHP task force. That's what includes um, undersea anomalies and um, undersea objects. And um, at the hearing, if you heard the last hearing in the Senate, which was the even in the 40s, there was there were never Senate hearings. So it was the only uh, UAP UFO hearing in the history of the Senate. Um, you heard the director of that office say, DOD hasn't approved my budget. DOD hasn't approved my plan. DOD hasn't approved my best practices. So the more the DOD pushes back on these bipartisan elected officials, the more frustration they're creating and the more these officials are saying, hey, what's going on? Well, that is fascinating. Uh, So many different aspects of what you just said are fascinating, uh, including the fact that it seems to be genuinely a bipartisan issue. We're talking with Jessica Taco. She is the CEO at A10 Associates. You can check out their website at A10, the number 10, A10Associates.com. So with that in mind, uh, that this does have some bipartisan support and you have seen uh, some members of Congress being willing to take the lead on this and others be pretty open-minded to this. What are the next steps in terms of where we go with this stuff legislatively? Is there going to be another round of hearings? If so, when? And uh, what are those hearings likely to include? Sure. So um, right now, uh, and at this time every year, um, Congress is working on the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, that is the vehicle where uh, legislation can take place around this issue. Um, so I would look for there to be stronger um, language compelling these UFO UAP reports. Um, at one point uh, last year, but it didn't come into the final language, um, there was going to be a requirement that the GAO, which is the Government Accountability Office, get involved. Um, to compel and enforce these reports. Um, At the last hearing, uh, which had uh, Senator Gillibrand, uh, Senator Joni Ernst, and Senator Rosen, so bipartisan group of of women, of female senators, um, they asked um, uh, the head of the ARO office to submit to them um, certain information he did not have uh, because DOD had not approved it. So those senators have committed to go back, um, compel the DOD to produce that information. And once that's produced, I could definitely see there being another hearing around the topic. Um, and then you've got members of the House that are pursuing the issue at the same time. Very interesting. And uh, I could talk with you about this stuff all day, but I'll I'll end with this, Jessica. I know you've been featured on the very popular TV program, Ancient Aliens, and I saw you on there and you were great. And one of the things that I, I, I and I believe I'm restating the ancient alien hypothesis aptly is they believe that uh, the people that adhere to this ancient alien hypothesis that uh, aliens could potentially have been visiting this planet f- thousands of years ago, and some people even believe that some of what's chronicled in the Bible and other ancient texts 
could actually be descriptions of UFOs visiting the planet. And some people believe that it might even be aliens that have planted the seeds of the human civilization that we're here now. Uh, some people point to the work of uh, uh, of the, the ancient pyramids in Egypt and other things as possible evidence of that. Other people have pointed to the similarities on places like Mars of certain structures that are on this planet. What is your view of the ancient alien hypothesis, and what do you think the evidence suggests about the likelihood of anything that I just mentioned? So I I have to tell you, I think ancient aliens is one of the big ways that this topic has become mainstream. Um, They've had 20 seasons, and I watched the first season 20 years ago, and I never thought I would be on it. Um, But I think that they have some very interesting theories, and I don't think they should be ignored. Um, they really shouldn't. I mean, if you look, so here's, uh, this is this is what makes me start to believe, and I'll tell you this. I put together a briefing document for Senate Intelligence on this issue, and I went back through um, recorded history um, and in, in modern day recorded history, I guess. So that sounds strange, but 1800s to 1900s um, before air flight. And I pulled through newspapers, the, um, you know, the original version of the Washington Post, the original version of the New York Times, uh, the original version of the Chicago Tribune. If you read those papers, which were very credible sources at the time, um, that 100-year span, there were multiple sightings of UFOs um, in in the sky. This is before there was any electricity we were aware of, before any flight we were aware of. How could there have been that much and us not wonder what's going on in the skies? And when you look at ancient aliens, how could those pyramids have been built? I've, I've visited... Um, a lot of different countries and seeing, um, you know, what's in the jungles of Cambodia um, versus what we have in Europe and Africa. And I have to say, how can, how was that made um, with the technology at the time? So I think they have some very interesting hypotheses. Um, Why would the Bible, why would all these writings um, all exaggerate the same things, the same type of stories on so many different continents. Yeah, it's a great um, question. Great question. Yeah, very, very thought-provoking. All right, so, uh, Jessica, yeah. unfortunately okay. we're going to have to end it there, but I'd love to chat with you again in the future and continue the conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I could talk about this for hours. Yeah, uh, let's uh, let's schedule something soon. Jessica Taco, A10 Associates, the lobbying firm that represents MUFON. We've uh, talked with a few people from MUFON on this program before. They do some great work. And uh, clearly, uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of future Washington involvement on this. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Joan Jett, I Hate Myself for Loving You. Interestingly enough, this song appeared in a recent episode of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. A great song nonetheless. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the show, uh, just join our Facebook group. Uh, just go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano, or you can search M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. You also want to join our regular Facebook page as well, uh, which is distinct from the Facebook group. That's very simply just facebook.com slash Morano fan. I put up uh, some photos of Carmine and I playing ping pong. I'll tell you, the kid really does like ping pong. He is not great with the hand-eye coordination yet, but he enjoys the game. He enjoys holding the paddle. He enjoys uh, trying to hit the paddle with the ball, the, hit the ball with the paddle. He enjoys when I kind of bounce the ball on my paddle. So we did. I was playing my brother Alexander, who's a much better player than I am, and I was holding Carmine in front of me while we tried to hit the ball uh, together. So we have some pictures of that. Uh, one Facebook user, so you can see those pictures if you want, facebook.com slash fan. One Facebook user asked the question, "What?" A, she said, what a cutie. I'm assuming she means my son, not me. By the way, what does your T-shirt say? Yes, the T-shirt, and it is obscured in this picture, so I'll just tell you. The T-shirt that I'm wearing uh, in this photograph says, and I have a few versions of this. Maybe I'll wear another one tomorrow. It says it's a Morano thing you wouldn't understand, which is true of so many different aspects of my life. Hey, coming up next hour, we're going to talk with Tony Lobianco. Meantime, if you haven't already, I really want to encourage you to... Listen to the uh, latest episode of The Racket Report. I'll play a a brief clip of that. My guest is Alan Geick. We talked about his Uncle Charlie, who actually killed Dush Schultz and went to jail. Did you view your Uncle Charlie any differently after you knew that he had committed at least one but probably multiple murders? No, because... Uh, so many of them. I mean, I didn't meet him until I was uh, in college. The others I knew since I was a child. And uh, often they would be disappeared for, for jail sentences. But I knew of Uncle Charlie. I knew that my father, even though he didn't make a big deal out of it, had gone to give money to his family. We sort of lived in that culture even though my sister, brother, and I were not uh, ever thinking of being part of it, uh, that was out of the question. Even though my brother got arrested in the Prince of the City, uh, uh, which involved organized crime also. So it's a fascinating interview. You can go to Red Apple Podcast Network, just search The Racket Report, or search The Racket Report on any podcast app, and it'll come up. Until then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Some of you may be awake right now because you're driving home from a night out on the town. Although, I mean, who's really going out on a Monday night? I mean, back in my day, once in a blue moon, you'd have a good Monday night. But, I mean, I think I've gone out and partied hard on a Monday night. Well, maybe during the summer it's different. But 
I guess it's spring break for some people. Okay, so maybe you're listening right now because you're coming back home from a night out on the town. Maybe you're listening to me right now because you are working late and you've got the radio or your wireless device keeping you company, and we are the soundtrack of your workplace at the moment. Maybe you're listening to me right now because you're driving home, coming home from work, or maybe you're listening to me right now because you can't sleep. Maybe the reason you can't sleep has nothing to do with your insomnia. Maybe the reason you can't sleep has nothing to do with your heartburn or the fact that you had to get up to use the restroom. Maybe the reason that you can't sleep has nothing to do with the fact that you had a cup of coffee too late in the day and now you're being kept up with caffeine. Maybe. Just maybe. The reason you can't sleep has nothing to do with you. And it has to do with the person you're sleeping next to. Perhaps the person you're sleeping next to snores. Or they hog the blanket. Or they need to get up early for a job or something. And they set the alarm too early. Or something else. Well, perhaps it is time for you to consider... A sleep divorce. I'm sure this has been this has been done throughout history, but now it has a name. Many couples are getting a sleep divorce. What that means is getting their sleep in either separate beds or rooms to improve their personal sleep quality. You see, partners can sometimes disrupt a good night's sleep whether it's from snoring or any of the other things that I just mentioned. So social media users have even started to talk about this phenomenon with 356,400 views for the hashtag sleep divorce on TikTok. One couple on TikTok shared that one of them has the greatest sleep of her life and doesn't understand why the other is sleepless. So a sleep divorce can be necessary. Nighttime comes the time where we just disconnect. And sleep experts believe that there could be significant benefits to a sleep breakup. Daniel Shade is the director of the On Sleep Disorders Center, and he spoke to the CBS affiliate in Pittsburgh about a sleep divorce. If there are no sleep problems at all, then by all means, sleeping in the same bed is better. Perhaps one person wants to watch TV until midnight and the other doesn't, or you like the bed colder. Little things like that can lead to sleep disruption. It's actually more common than you think, too. About a quarter of couples will sleep apart. A quarter of couples sleep apart. I would love to hear from you if you do this. And if so, why? And if so, how this has worked out, 800-848-9222. I, um, you know, my wife and I don't generally during the week sleep in in the bed at the same time because we're on opposite schedules. I usually get to bed around 6.30, quarter to 7, 7 o'clock, and that's around the time that she starts her day. Although we're in bed during the week for about 15 minutes together, and she does hog that blanket. Because she is used to being solo in the bed the whole night, and then I come in and I try to get a little bit of blanket, and sometimes she can hold on to it pretty pretty tightly. 
She also sleeps with a sleep mask on, white noise, and earplugs. So during the weekend, we go to sleep at the same time. But during the week, we, we really don't. We have maybe 15, 20 minutes together at most. And that 15, 20 minutes together, I get very little blanket time in because of my wife's blanket selfishness. I never really thought this was a good strategy for couples because anecdotally, a lot of the couples that I've known that have done this made the decision to sleep in separate beds. Things, you know, that turned out to be a harbinger of other things in their relationship. I remember my friend uh, Curtis and Le- uh, Curtis Lewa. He and his ex, one of his many ex-wives, Lisa, needed to sleep in separate. I think not just separate rooms. I think they slept in separate apartments because uh, she needed her beauty sleep and Curtis didn't sleep. They had just very different sleep schedules. So even though they both were coming to the same workplace and lived ostensibly in the same residence, they would travel together differently. Now, so their marriage, I'm sure there were other issues, obviously. Their marriage didn't last. I knew someone else who was a morning news anchor. So she would have to be on TV at, I think, about 6 a.m., maybe 7 a.m. So she'd have to start her preparation of getting ready by 3, 3.30 in the morning. So she and her husband would end up sleeping in separate beds. And she told me that that did take a toll on their relationship, and ultimately they got divorced. I know another couple, an Orthodox Jewish couple, that, and I don't know if uh, they had separate beds in their bedroom. I don't know if they always separ- uh, spent their time in separate beds or if it was just around the time that she was menstruating that they had to be in separate beds because I know that's a big thing in the Orthodox Jewish culture. But uh, that marriage also didn't materialize. But it didn't, uh, didn't last. That couple ended up getting divorced. I know another couple that one of them, this is my friend Arthur's parents, his mother listens to me religiously all the time at the hours that I'm on. His father doesn't want to listen to me. He wants to sleep. Who could blame him? So his mother's got the radio on super low, and she keeps moving over to the corner of the bed in order to hear me. She keeps the radio on very low, but she hangs out right at the edge of the bed just so she can hear the radio. And what's been happening several times over the last three years is she's fallen off the bed and injured herself because she's straining to listen to me. And now I don't want to be a, 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 pro, a radio program that injures anybody. But I'm curious if you have engaged in a sleep divorce, and if so... How it's worked out for you. 800 I like having a partner uh, sleep next to me. Well, not just any partner. I'd prefer it to be my wife. I, I think it's nice. I think it's, uh, I enjoy the cuddling aspect of it. I enjoy, you know, having someone next to you. I think it's, uh, it's very comforting. But when you're on different hours and that whole thing, it becomes very difficult. There were times when I was working early mornings and my wife had more of a conventional 9-to-5 schedule, my alarm would go off at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning. And so I would have to set my alarm in the bed with her, and it would disrupt her sleep. 
you know, she would be able to go back to bed, but it was it was difficult. I don't think there's been a better example of this than what Cosmo Kramer had to deal with when he was dating a woman who had the Jimmy legs. To refresh your recollection, the woman that he was dating, played brilliantly, by the way, by the lovely and talented Sarah Silverman, she had to have a little bit of a talking to with Kramer about their whole situation. So let me get this straight. You enjoy the lovemaking. Shh, shh. Well, do you? Oh, yeah. Like strawberry pie. Okay, but you have a problem sharing a bed with me. I know it's not what the ladies like, but without some solid sack time, I'm a zombie. I don't know. Oh, come on, man. Meet me halfway. You're not easy, Kramer. I know. So is there searching for a solution? Kramer interacts with Frank Costanza. He's at Frank Costanza's house and sees that Frank Costanza and Estelle, his wife, have two separate beds. Quite a discovery. Hey, Frank. You got two beds in here. That's right. That's me on the left. So you sleep in separate beds? 30 years ago, we came to an agreement. It was the only way I could get some rest. Really? Estelle's got the Jimmy arms. You can get that in your arms? Like you wouldn't believe. And there was Kramer's solution. Separate beds. And he embraced that and it worked out great for him. So do you do this? Do you sleep in a separate room or a separate bed from your couple, from your your partner? If so, why? And if you do, how has it worked out for you? 800-848-9222 because this trend of the sleep divorce is really resonating all over social media. Let me begin with uh, by saying hello to Carol in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi there. Hi. Frank, um, I live by myself, so I don't have to worry about that. I can sleep when I want to, stay up when I want to. So there is something very about liberating about living by yourself. That's, that is yes, true. I remember is. my days of uh, living by myself. It is. But I was actually calling to speak to you about Rick Astley because I remember I thought he was excellent. He had those two famous songs, Never Gonna Give You Up. And there was another one, You're All I Need or something like that. He wound up becoming a delivery driver. Yeah, he he tried to make a comeback a couple of years ago, but for some reason it didn't take it didn't off. Work out. Yeah. No. Yeah. Anything else there, Carol? Um, no. Just to say, I hope you have a great rest of the week, and you know, say hi to Rachel and. Thank, uh, thank you, Carol. I, I appreciate that. Thank you, Carol. You have a great yeah. rest of the week yourself. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Alan is in Queens. Alan, you have a comment about a sleep divorce. Yes, uh, I. It, when you spoke about this, uh, 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 something came to mind from my own own life. About 19, 20 years ago, I started going with this Brazilian girl, hmm. the best-looking girl I had ever encountered, had a relationship with. And for some reason, I can only sleep alone. And when I think about it, I was a firstborn child, and even when my younger brother was born, we slept in in, uh, separate rooms and everything. And 
the problem with what happened with she and I, uh, she got very, like, kind of hurt feelings. And I really, you know, I like this girl. There are a lot of good qualities about And I try to explain to her that um, for some reason, maybe it's force of habit, I just have to sleep alone. We lasted about two years. We oh. still call each other once in a while, but... I was trying to tell her that I, it's not that I don't like her. I don't feel for her. No, I, I understand. You're, you're in the same position that Kramer was there. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, your point about, um, about her being attractive, I yeah. knew that from Jump Street. And I know this might be a little bit uh, drawing with, uh, painting with a broad brush, but yeah. I have never met an unattractive Brazilian woman. I don't know what's going on in Brazil. I used I to know. call her the girl from Ipanema. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Alan, yeah. um, is that still the case with you? You always have to sleep alone? Uh, well, I'm living alone now. I've slept alone my whole life. Ooh. And I try to tell these, uh, that, that particular uh, lady, it's not have anything to do with you. But anyway, there was a sort of a cultural divide. I, we still call each other now and again. But so in uh, this instance, the sleep divorce wasn't, it didn't work out for you. It didn't save your relationship at all. No. There okay. were other issues. Besides, I don't think that was, but that was one, um, you know, serious issue. Got it. Got it. Thank you, Alan. Curious if you've tried this, sleeping in separate beds from your partner or separate rooms. And if so, how has it worked out? So, so far, we're 0 for 1. Mark is in Westchester. Hello, Mark. Yeah, yes, sir, Frank. Um, I knew my marriage was coming to an end when my wife would insist using the kind of the malaise of, I'd like to sleep with my younger daughter tonight, uh, you know, Mark. Is that cool? And that went on for six months. So we weren't being uh, uh, intimate, as we would mm. say, in an adult way. And I knew at that time that there was something going on. If you are not cuddling and sleeping in your bed and you are married, and I was married for 22 years, uh. that is the beginning of the end, no matter what the excuse is. But, but in your case, that Mark... the beginning and, of the end. And, and I have to run because we've got to talk with Tony LoBianco, but just so I understand, in your case, she didn't tell you, I want to sleep in separate beds because you're snoring or because of restless leg syndrome or anything like that. She just said, I want to sleep with, with our daughter? With our younger daughter because she's asking me to come in there. I see, I see, yeah. And, yeah. yeah, and then a little bit later, I found out why she was sleeping there. So yeah, that's a that's just, a red flag, uh, Mark. Yeah. I'm sorry you had to deal with that. Hey, we'll take more calls on this in a moment. But uh, Tony LoBianco is waiting in the wings. Legendary Emmy winning actor, Tony nominated actor, uh, more awards than than I can name. Never an Oscar, but a lot of other good awards. Oscar nominated movies and Oscar winning movies, but uh, he never got one. We'll talk with him about movies. A whole bunch of other things in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I'll tell you, the thing about Tony LoBianco is he's a fascinating character because anybody that has been to a stage show or watched a motion picture or turned on a television set anytime over the last 50 or 60 years knows who Tony LoBianco is. I guess the big difference is what you know Tony LoBianco from. Sometimes you know Tony LoBianco from appearing in a gangster picture. Sometimes you know Tony LoBianco for playing a boxer. Sometimes you know Tony LoBianco from uh, playing Fiorella LaGuardia. Sometimes you know Tony LoBianco from uh, being just at a lot of charitable events. I think the one thing that has everybody united is that everybody knows Tony LoBianco from the French Connection. I'll tell you what, uh, even though he has been at it for, I guess, 50 or 60 years, he's still going strong with a new movie out, being honored left and right. It is a real treat and a distinct pleasure to welcome back to the program legendary stage, television, film actor, writer, and producer, Tony LoBianco. Tony, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me. Oh, my God. Thank you. Thank you. That's a very nice introduction. Well, it, you know, it happens to be Thank true. You. We could uh, we could go on and on. I know you were just honored by the uh, National Italian American Foundation, and you're going to be honored uh, by the Sons of Italy in Washington, D.C. later this month. I know you're the, uh, the child of Sicilian immigrants. A lot of people may not know, even people that have followed your career for a long time, they may not know your story and your family's story. Tell me about it. When, when did your family come to America? What did they do when they got well, here? Okay, no, let, me, let me just correct that. No, it was my grandparents that came here, not got my it, mother got and it. father. My both, mistake. Both my mother and father. My mother and father were born here. Uh, one was in Brooklyn, the other one was in New York. And uh, my mother was in New York, my father in Brooklyn. Um, but my grandparents, they, uh, they came from Sicily on both sides. And uh, you know how things were, or maybe, or maybe a lot of people do not know, that when the Italians came over here, you know, they were treated worse than anybody. And uh, just like the Irish were, and, and uh, the, you know, they were just thought up of as, as uh, you know, as the scum of the earth. And uh, they, they were, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, when my grandfather on my father's side came over, I think in 1885, some or so, maybe maybe 65, uh, as an immigrant didn't speak any English, uh, when he came over, he was a little guy, and uh, they made this guy, they were on the docks, and some uh, dock worker was uh, teasing him or making fun of him, and, he, and, and my grandfather uh, picked up a one of those uh, things that carry bricks, uh, a bat, and swung and hit him in the head with it. And at court, with this guy's head all bandaged up, he was a big guy, and, and my uh, my grandfather was was a tiny guy. And uh, and when the judge said, "And let me understand, you did that to him," and the grand my grandfather said, "Yes," and if you if you do and you say bad about me, I I break your head too. <laughs> to, the, to the judge and the judge dismissed the case, laughing, you know. So, uh, but you know, it's, it was a very difficult times back then. Uh, uh, my father was pulled out of school when they were, uh, you know, nine years old. Same thing with my mother. 
but you know, just uh, to uh, work. To work for my father and my my mother on her side was pulled out to go sew coats at Howard's, Howard Clothing back then. And uh, when the inspectors would come around about the child labor laws, they, they would hide my mother, you know, in the in the bathroom and uh, wait for, wait for them to go away. It was a it was really tough times, and I don't think people understand understand that today. Uh, I think we got a little. I shouldn't say a little. I think we got spoiled, you know. Well, you know, my uh, my grandparents, at least on my mother's side, they're from Italy as well. My family's from Naples on both sides. And mm. neither my mother nor my uncle speak Italian because my grandfather was, even though he, that was his primary language, he wanted his children to learn English. And I think exactly. that that was the, the trend among Italian immigrants to this country. Well, maybe, maybe all immigrants same, same at that thing, time. Yeah, same thing with with me i don't speak italian and and my uh my my grandparents actually uh, excuse me my my mother and my father i mean they spoke some kind of communicational italian to uh obviously her mother her mother and her father but they didn't really speak uh, uh a lot of italian and neither my either did my father so it's, it's it's interesting and then of course neither of me or, or my two brothers uh, spoke. Well, spoke that, that's Italian. that's what I was going to ask you about is how the immigrant experience might have changed uh, since the time that my grandparents and your grandparents came to came to this country. You know, I was really struck by that migrant caravan a few years ago that was supposedly fleeing uh, per- persecution in Central America. And the thing that I was struck by is that they were carrying the flags of the countries that they were supposedly fleeing. And I I would think, oh no! If you're going to a new land where you're seeking freedom, why are you carrying the flag of the country that made your life so miserable? I'm wondering, right. <laughs> do you think, Tony, honestly, that there's a different mentality when it comes to immigration to America today as opposed to when my grandfather and your grandfather came here? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, they came. Ours came. Uh, you know, for a. Not only did they come for a better life for uh, for themselves and their, their their children, but they they wanted to to uh, uh, migrate. And they wanted to assimilate mm-hmm. into this country and respect the laws and also you know uh, and the constitution. When they swore and 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 pledged their allegiance to to the flag and work and build this country. That's what they they did. If you, if you go around, you look at some of the structures. They were built by by great art, artisans, Italians, and and uh, throughout Washington and and uh, New York. And you take a look at those structures. And uh, uh, you know today, today when you when they put up a building, you know they put up uh, something, some kind of a straight building, and convince the public. That it's art. It's like it's just like the the crazy uh, modern art that they do right now and try to pass it off uh, pass it off as art. The same thing they they do with graffiti. It seems whatever they can't control, whether it's you know, drugs, or gambling, or uh, or uh, wine, liquor, anything they can't control, they legalize. You know, and or or as far as even as far as uh, uh, talent is concerned. You know, if you take a look at paintings, the great painters, 
you know, uh, and all that Leonardo da Vinci and and and, and uh, all, the, all the other great great artists. Compare those those uh, 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 statues and and paintings they did to to what they're painting and doing today. It's incredible. Same thing with cars. You take a look at those beautiful cars that they made back in the past. You wonder where have we gone wrong? You know, these cars all look alike. They're all they're, it's all commercial. Everything is commercial, made made quickly so they can make a, a fast mm-hmm. buck. Mm-hmm. And the artist is, is uh, not respected at all. What was it, speaking of artistry, that made mm. you want to be an actor? I know you come from a, a working class background, and I imagine most of your peers uh, growing up here in New York weren't necessarily talking about becoming an actor. What made you want to pursue this? Well, you know... You know, I, I grew up in a, in a, at a wonderful time, I think, and where I, I saw, you know, Bogart, uh, Edward G. Robinson, James Cagney, uh, and uh, Gone with the Wind, Clark Abel, Vivian Lee. I grew up with, with wonderful, wonderful movies and actors, and so on. And when I when I looked at the, at those pictures, uh, Lawrence Olivier, Wuthering Heights, uh, all these fantastic. Uh, actors of Austin Wells and Citizen Kane. I mean, this this was this was real, real acting and real and real messaging. And when I saw that kind of thing, because you know, frankly, I've never seen a script written with by the, with a character named Tony Lobianco. Never saw it, you know. And they don't. And and what I see when I read a script is is a character that is not me. It is me. I have to now turn myself into that human being, just like LaGuardia. If you take a look at uh, the play and, and, and see me on stage as LaGuardia, it has nothing to do with Tony uh, and those kind of roles uh, that, I, that I like doing. And that's what attracted me, acting. That's what I call acting. And, uh, and the, the difference, because I, I stage acting was, is my ball game. And I didn't do my first movie uh, until I've been, I don't know, 15 years as a stage actor. Wow. So I knew a great deal about uh, acting and and doing very, very good playwrights. You know, I was doing uh, Eugene O'Neill. I was doing Tennessee Williams, doing Arthur Miller. I was doing great playwrights. And that gives you, you know, uh, gives you a great background. So when you come to with, with those characters in those plays were so rich, so fully rich with so much so much var- var- uh, var- uh, uh, variations in in what they're in what they're you know, uh, dealing with the depth of of uh, the human being and that's what I'm interested in. So that so when I you know came into acting school out of uh, high school. Because I had a teacher, thank God, who uh, who took a liking to me, and she happened to be a speech and drama teacher, and at a vocational high school, uh, Patricia Jacobson, um, and she, uh, you know, I she had entered me into a contest, uh, a speaking contest of uh, doing a poem about a soldier dying in a foxhole and seeing God for the first time and having a conversation with God. 
before he dies. And that even that kind of drama, you know, you, you look at you, you look at that kind of drama that has such richness in it. Uh, just the whole idea of that. And that that uh, poem, I, I did that and uh, won. I won for my school. I won for my district. Wow. And then I, then I was one for Brooklyn. And there I was in, in the city finals representing Brooklyn uh, in the boroughs, the five boroughs. And when I graduated, I didn't win. But, but uh, it, was at, it was at a time when uh, oh, Joe McCarthy was doing uh, you know, his, his thing, and, and some kid did a proper, very, very American thing, and he won. He wasn't as good as even somebody else in there. But, but anyway... Uh, that's beside the point. The, the fact is, when you ask me, uh, ask me a question, I want to. I want to. Cha- I'm always after challenging myself. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. did that. I did that when I was playing ball. You know, I had a tryout with the Brooklyn Dodger rookies uh, as a, a baseball player, and uh, that's a whole other story in itself. But uh, you know, when I grew up, I think I think the c- competitive action really is where it where it uh, derived from i don't know where that came from but i was always uh, looking to do do the most difficult thing not the easiest thing when i was when i'd go out for a catch i would make sure that the the catches that i would 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 throw me against the wall have to have the ball thrown way at my ankles at, at once something spectacular so, so that kind of training, that kind of difficulty. So, when I went into into acting school, when somebody put me, the, the teacher put me into a, a a play and put me in tights and ballet slippers, uh, you know, it didn't bother me at all because it was so different and 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 challenging. And uh, coming as a boxer in the Golden Gloves, I fought as a, as a, a fighter. You would think that you would think, hey, I would think, hey, hey that's the, that's. No, no. Um, in fact, when uh, uh, I did that, uh, then then I, I, I challenged. Uh, I said, I said, listen, we got a theater here in 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 the, in the school. I said, let's put plays on. So when I and I wanted to find out, and I was going there to be an actor, but I wanted to know all about costumes. Mm. I wanted to know about the lighting. I wanted to know about. So I got in, get involved in all the set building and cleaning the stage making sure you're on time, you know, absolutely, you know, I'm being on time is being there 10 minutes early, you know, that's on time for me. Uh, and, uh, so I'm a real, I guess, taskmaster, uh, about myself. And, uh, so that kind of competitive, that kind of competitive, even, even when I was playing softball, you know, I was a pitcher, the manager of the team, uh, we won eight championships. Wow. Wow. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the MVP three three times uh, in in the eight wins. It'll be good. Uh, it's good to know uh, who to recruit now that I know of your softball playing acumen. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll keep that in mind for the spring and the summer. Uh, we're talking with uh, legendary actor Tony Lobianco. You can learn more about uh, his career and what he's doing now by going to the website TonyLobianco.com. Tony, you're in this new film out now, this new Ray Romano film, Somewhere in Queens, which I want to ask you about in a second. But let me ask you this. You've had an incredible 
incredibly successful career as an actor and doing a variety of other things in show business. And, you know, you're at an age now where most people are either retired or running for president. My guess is <laughs> my guess is you don't necessarily need to work. What continues to drive you that you're still out there working hard, making movies, even at an age that a lot of men, a lot of people are looking at retirement? You know, I, you know, I think the excitement of creation, you know, I, you know, this play LaGuardia, I wrote, wrote, uh, I did this play since 1982. I also did it in Russia. Would you, would you believe? Yeah. In Moscow, I, right? In Moscow. Exactly. Playing the Fiorello LaGuardia, which was the 99th mayor of New York city. But, you know, I, I keep opening that play and keep rewriting and keep finding new ways uh, to uh, to deliver the, uh, this line and and this movement and I, it's so written down it's it, it keeps inspiring me and I get inspired by being inspired <laughs> and 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 that kind of thing drives me uh, so uh, I love creation I love the uh, the idea of keep inventing new things uh, that are better than before uh, not not the you know I I I, I see today I think people want to want to be quote i forgive forgive the word progressive which is supposed to be you know uh creative i i think and being more it doesn't that's not that's not necessarily what it is they want to change things and not and, and every time they do they change it for the worse i want to i want to change things for the better and uh and i and i and i so it keeps it keeps me going that way you know and uh so i'm i'm still looking to do to to find that role, people have asked me what role would you like to do? Uh, you know, you haven't done yet, and uh, you know I've done, I've done 102 movies and countless plays, and I think it's five to six Broadway plays. But uh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I'm trying, I'm, I keep try, I'm trying to search for it, and maybe it won't come in a in a form, but maybe it'll come in some kind of a, of character. Uh, so I, I really don't I really don't know, but it just inspi- I get I get inspired. That's why, you know. And sometimes I get di- disillusioned from what I see, and oh, that I... is very that, that is very uh, a lot of cheating cheating going on in in making the movies. You know. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. So tell me about this film that you're in now, Somewhere in Queens. I know that uh, it yeah, not only stars uh, Ray Romano, but that he uh, directed it as well. Most people know Ray Romano from his work uh, sure. with uh, yeah. Everybody Loves Raymond. Uh, it, t- how did you enjoy making this picture, and you think audiences will enjoy it? Oh, well, I think it's wonderful. I, I think Ray Romano uh, is a is a wonderful, wonderful human being, and and he he was a fabulous director. And marvelous actor, and he picked a wonderful cast with Laurie Metcalf. She's wonderful. Gen- Jennifer Esposito is terrific, and Sebastian Maniscalco, Jacob Ward, and a young, young and a young lady named Sadie uh, Stanley. She's just terrific, terrific people. We had a we had he picked a, a great crew, and it was a very family oriented uh, shooting, and uh, because it was a fa- about a family. And he, he he did a wonderful thing by uh, by bringing these people together. And he you know he's, Ray is from Queens, so it's it's really about his life uh, somewhat. And uh, uh, he he was he was great in every aspect. And you know when you when you can do a lot of things, people 
they can't they can't imagine it, and they just take a lot of things for granted. But when you're writing the script, you're you're acting in the movie, you're directing the movie, you're producing the movie. People can't get their minds around that. That is fantastic. That is a, that is applause beyond applause. And he did everything wonderful. And I think uh, uh, you know you'll see that you see it, and it's and when should people should see this movie because the the kids, the young kids, Jacob Ward and, and Sadie, they're just terrific. And and uh, Laurie Metcalf, I think she she does an Academy Award wow. performance. Well, yeah, really, now, really so somewhere in Queens is the film. It's uh, it's available now. People can check it out. One thing I did want to ask you because obviously the French Connection and some of the other films that you've been in, Kill the Irishman, they do feature gun violence. And I've heard some people, even some people involved in Hollywood, in light of the whole Alec Baldwin incident on the uh, set of the film Rust, say that uh, we that Hollywood needs to look again at how they're handling the issue of guns and gun safety, and that going forward, the technology exists to use guns digitally and have them fired digitally rather than using a real gun with blanks. As someone that's yeah. been in a fair amount of films that have guns in them, what's your yeah. view of how uh, how differently listen, guns I, should I, be treated, I if think, at all? I think we're, listen, I think we're a rather sick, sick group of people out in Hollywood these days. I think the idea of, uh, you know, what, what we get crazy. There was a, a shoe bomber, and now all of a sudden everybody had to take off their shoes. Uh, uh, there was a, this accident, a, a terrible accident that, uh, that someone didn't, didn't do uh, 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 right by, by the gun that, that Alex had in his hand. Uh, now, they're, now they're going crazy about the guns. They, you know, it's just another way of uh, taking your gun away uh, from uh, law-abiding people uh, in, in just in general because now it becomes a war against guns. And it's, 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 uh, it's not the gun. It, more people die of, of hammers and knives, and they're not doing anything about that. that. Uh, and, and as far as uh, uh, they are doing, I see Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg, uh, there were guns in that uh, E.T. movie, I guess it was, and uh, he, he traded him in for cell phones, which is <laughs> did it digitally. And now he just said, "Yeah, he said he regrets that." I was talking about that yesterday. That. He, he regrets that, right? Classic films in past, like French Connection and Seven Ups, and everything that was going on. You know, when you when you and and the language also that you used back then is all part of history. Right. It's right. all part of the. It's all part of history. And it was right then or wrong then. Whatever it is, is. And, uh, you know, leave everything alone. And if you want to start, uh, uh, just, you know, I, I, I'm going to use the, I'm going to tell you, you can imagine the way I'm talking. This whole woke nonsense is just out of hand. It's just, it's just destroying our whole country. And I'm very, very much against that. Well, uh, two two issues that I want to ask you about. Well, since you alluded to this, right? Um, mm. You know, I, I can take a guess based on how you're speaking now about wokeness and other things mm. uh, as to where you fall on the political spectrum. And I'm guessing it's a different place from where Alec Baldwin and Sean Penn fall on the political spectrum. And obviously, you're all great actors. And to me, it doesn't matter. 
matter where, what an actor's politics are at all. But we've heard from some actors that are on the right over the years that they feel that there's sort of a discrimination against conservatives in Hollywood that's not that's not um, present when it comes to political biases against liberals. From your perspective, do you think that's accurate? Uh, does show business discriminate against actors who might be right leaning? Well, that's that's what I hear. I, I I have no way of knowing uh, if if that is really happening. I'm uh, because I, I you can't prove it. I don't know. I don't know. You can't prove you're not getting a a job because of that. But some people, I guess, can. I I don't know. I, I'm uh, as you said before. You know, if a role comes along and they they want me, just like the Ray's movie, uh, uh, that that's how we do it. But uh, so I, I have no idea that I I'm being discriminate, discriminating against. I probably am, but uh, I'm 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 not out there that much. What I'm out there for is the right thing, with the, and the right thing is about our our uh, veterans, about our police, and 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 our country, and our borders, and our you know common sense and our budget. And I mean, that's all just common sense. You don't have to be right or, or left. Just, you just have to have common sense and logic. I, I, you don't want a country to, to be in the shape it's in now. So and you got to just say, well, why? Well, how did that happen? Yeah. That's just logic and common sense. It, yeah, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Tony LoBianco. You mentioned the issue of veterans. At the end of the month, it's Memorial Day, and mm. you and I have both been active in promoting an organization called Gold Shield, which seeks That's to end, end veteran suicide. And if people want to learn uh, more about that, they can go to goldshield.us uh, or, or the simple truth. Uh, they can go to the simple truth.com. But I'm wondering, one of the issues that doesn't get talked about nearly enough, as far as I'm concerned, is that issue of veteran suicide. And we're yeah. still seeing a big problem with this. From yeah. what you have, have seen, what do you think can be done about this as a country? Well, I think more, more consciousness about it, at least. It's minimum, a minimum, you know, we should have we should have more uh, uh, information out there constantly. Uh, I mean, 22 a day. People don't even understand there's 22 a day veterans committing suicide. That's alarming beyond belief. And they look at the veterans that are out on the street, homeless. I mean, these these people should be revered, should be taken care of, should be should be treasured. And uh, and I I just think I know I know Nick Nick is Nick is doing a, a great job. Nick is uh, with you know. with Gold Shield, and people can learn Gold more about Shield. it. Just go to thegoldshield.us. Right. That's thegoldshield.us. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And and I did a video uh, called uh, a soldier, a yeah. soldier, J- just a, a common soldier, just a common soldier. Or it's got two titles: just a common soldier, or a soldier died today, and uh, it it has received, to to my astonishment and joy, it has received about forty million views. Wow! Yeah, that's it's, it's a tribute to our veterans. It's, it's and and that that people would look at that 
those 40 million, uh, uh, I mean, we're only a, a country of, of 300 and so that's right, 340. So, uh, and I'm, and I'm guessing that when that gets abused, it's not just, not just one person looking at it. Yeah. So I can't imagine how many people have seen this. I just wish that you, every, every one of your listeners, uh, take a look at that. Yeah, I, very, I hope they do. If people want to take a look, I'm going to link to it right now on my Facebook page. People could take a look. Just go to facebook.com slash moranofan, and you could uh, see and hear Tony's rendition of Just a Common Soldier. Tony, I could talk with you all day. We are out of time. I appreciate you being so generous with your time so late at night. I hope we can do this again in the future. Absolutely. You're the best. Thank Keep you, up, baby. Tony Lobianco, the great Tony Lobianco, not just a great actor, but a great person and a, a great human being. If you want to be heard, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The name of the song is different. I believe the artist is Himenia Serenanye. And uh, I'm not sure if that's the proper pronunciation. But anyway, one of my favorite things to do, and I do this at least once a week, is I love to search on the Internet for different versions of what I'm about to say. I use different search terms because when you use different search terms, it yields different results. But the search term I used was the best song you've never heard. And this is the first thing that popped up. This apparently is the best song that you've never heard. Different. No, I think it's pretty good. Is the best is it the best song I've never heard? I really can't say because I don't even know what I'm comparing it to because all those other great songs that are out there, I don't know how good they are or how good they might be. So, pretty good, though. Pretty good. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Peter in Queens. Hello, Peter. Hi, Frank. How you doing? On the issue of the sleeping, I found this. I've, I've talked to you before about the guardianship, but uh, that was a while ago. Mm-hmm. And I've been married 54 years, and I'm a senior of 79. So, I found when I was young, I had to sleep with my wife. We got older, uh, the children got older. Eventually, we uh, started sleeping in separate rooms. But why together, did you, why did still... you start sleeping in separate rooms? Well, the children moved out. We I had the extra bed, and uh, we you know uh, we were getting older, so we weren't uh, sexually uh, active much anymore, and it was just more convenient to do that. But what happened was with the guardianship that we went, I went through, and my wife leaving and getting stuck in the uh, senior citizen's home, I can't sleep anymore. The real reason is when we, even when we slept in separate rooms, as long as she was there, 
I could sleep. Mm. But now that she's not here, I can't sleep. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I can imagine that's very frustrating. So did you find initially when you made the decision to move to separate rooms, did you find that that was helpful for your sleep? Did you get an improved night's sleep when when you went that route? Well, we went, when I went that route and she went that route, uh, I got some good sleep and she got some good sleep. Okay, so it worked. There's, there's no, no. It worked for you uh-huh. guys. It worked for you. It worked, yes. That's great. So it I guess it work. can work. And look, and thank you, Peter, and I'm sorry again for what you're going through. But I think um, I think that bears out what a lot of these sleep experts are saying, that if it's going to lead to a situation where you both get better sleep, then so be it. You know, it's funny, uh, Tony Lobianco mentioned our friend Nick Barbaro. And about a year ago, you know, I carry a George Costanza wallet. My wallet is uh, very thick. And actually, I've slimmed it down a little bit, but it's it's a lot. It's It's very thick. And it's quite heavy, and it's quite cumbersome, but I swear by this thing. You know, very similar to George for all the reasons. So anyway, um... A lot of times when I go into a room, I'll take my wallet out because it does sort of get in the way of sitting. So people see that I have this kind of a wallet. So my friend Nick gets me one of these very slim wallets. I think it's called an Exter wallet. Very thin, and you put the idea is you just put your cards in there and then you put your money on the outside. Well, I hadn't really used it for the last week. I said... You know, I just got ordered some new business cards. Why don't I Why don't I use it as a business card holder? I could still use my wallet for that wallet and use this extra wallet as a business card holder. So I shoved a bunch of business cards in there, and I'm in Atlantic City on Saturday or Friday, and I can't get a business card out. I met a listener. I was going to give her my card, and I couldn't get a business card out. And the business cards are stuck in there. Rachel tries. She can't get it out. And then we're both trying. I'm looking things up on how to get this in. And then I actually got to the point where I'm shaking this thing, pressing the button that's supposed to unleash them, and I'm using my mouth and my teeth to rip the business cards out of the wallet. Finally, that worked. I'm just glad nobody I knew noticed that. Until next hour, your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I am Frank Morano. Thank you for tuning in to our program. I'll tell you, I have never been a big fan of um, Randy Weingarten. Randy Weingarten, if you're not familiar, I got to know her 
as a personality. I don't know her personally. But I got to know her as the when she was the president of the UFT. And uh, that that's the Union of Teachers in New York City, in New York State. But then about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, she became, well, more than that, maybe about 15 years ago, she became the head of the National Teachers Union, the AFT. And every once in a while, I think she makes a point that I agree with. But by and large, I do not agree with her. I, I think the agenda that she puts forward as a union leader is not an agenda that's helpful to children. It's not an agenda that's helpful to education. It's not an agenda, I think, in many instances, that's helpful to her members. So I generally, not always, but I'd say 80% of the time, I disagree with wherever she comes down on an issue. That being said, I was watching her testify on Wednesday at a hearing of the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic because I didn't like her behavior during the coronavirus pandemic either. She wanted to, if it was up to her, these schools would still be closed. And I was interested in hearing what she had to say. And lo and behold, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene did the impossible. And look, I've been critical of Marjorie Taylor Greene, but when I've agreed with her, I've said so, and whatever. I don't think I'm unfair to anybody. But she made me um, defend Randy Weingarten. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is just a little out of control at times. So she attacked Randy Weingarten for not being a real mother because she's a stepmom. Listen to exactly what happened between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Randy Weingarten, and then the voice you hear at the end is uh, Congressman Robert Garcia, who I believe is from California, although might be Texas. This is a Garcia from California. I think he's from California. Here's Marjorie Taylor Greene questioning Randy Weingarten. Are you a mother? I am a mother by marriage. By marriage, I see. Um, and and my have... wife is here with me, so I'm really glad that she's here. Rather our, Sharon Klein. Ms. Weingarten, I reclaim my time. I didn't ask you a question. Sorry. What I'd like to talk about is your recommendations to the CDC as not a medical doctor, not a biological mother, um, and, and really not a teacher either. You had no business advising the CDC what the medical guidelines were for school closures because now we have a nation of school children who have suffered because of it. The problem is, is people like you need to admit that you're just a political activist, not General a teacher, ladies, not a mother, and not a medical doctor. Point of order, Mr. Chairman. I, I just want to make, just, make note that um, the the decorum of the attacks on the witness were unacceptable that the general lady from Georgia just did. And so it'd be nice if we didn't attack the witnesses, um, particularly whether or not, whether, and making a decision about whether or not she's a mother. You are a mother. Thank you for, for, for being a great parent. Thank you. Thank you. Your point of order is recognized, Mr. Now, Garcia. I, I, that's uh, Congressman Garcia there uh, towards the end. Uh, just to be clear, I agree with Ma- Marjorie Taylor Greene on what she was talking about on the issue of the lockdowns. That way that she just spoke to Randy Weingarten and totally denigrated everybody 
that is not a biological mother of someone, I found that so incredibly reprehensible and objectionable. And it was not, you know, we all say things, myself included, in the heat of the moment that you get a little carried away, right? She reiterated this on Twitter. So this was not, this is clearly her belief. She put this same video on Twitter and she said, here, I question Randy Weingarten, not a doctor, not a mother, and not a teacher, nothing but a political activist. She destroyed our children's education with her unscientific guidelines to the CDC that forced our kids to stay home. And, you know, she is a mother. As she said, she's a mother through marriage. She and her wife, she's married to Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum. They have two daughters who Kleinbaum brought to the relationship. And Weingarten described herself as a mother by marriage. So what is Marjorie Taylor Greene saying? That if you're a step-parent, you don't count? Is she saying that if, unless you birthed a child, that your your views on their academic future, their educational future, their health, their well-being don't count? And if she's right or she's wrong about the COVID pandemic, and again, I happen to think she's wrong, but if she's right or she's wrong on the COVID pandemic, that should have nothing to do with whether or not she's a mother or not. Either she's right or she's wrong. So I thought that was a real cheap shot on the part of Marjorie Taylor Greene. I also thought it was just a horrible way to speak to someone. And I I just don't understand why anyone, Marjorie Taylor Greene or anyone else, would want to behave this way. I think it's really, um, really objectionable. And really unforgivable. And I don't approve of the Democrats that felt the need to take to Twitter. One guy said, F you, I'm adopted. You know, you don't have to say F you to a colleague either. I mean, just because she says something that's terrible doesn't mean that um, that you then have to curse at them. That was Jimmy Gomez, Congressman Jimmy Gomez, who said, uh, ad- um No, no. Uh, Congressman Maxwell Frost, Democrat of Florida, who said, my mom and dad adopted me at birth and they're my parents. F you and your bigoted questions. Now, why do you have to say F you? I mean, just say uh, that you disapprove of what she's saying. I just I'm really unhappy with where we are in this country. And it goes hand in hand to some of what Tony LoBianco was saying last hour. I'm really unhappy with where we are in this country in how people think it's okay to speak to other people. I don't know how we got here. I don't know how these people were raised. But for you to dress down someone, first by asking them a question and then interrupting them as they provide an answer to your question and say, I didn't ask you a question, and then to lecture them about how you're not a mother because you didn't give birth to the two children that you're raising, I think that was uh, really, really hurtful. And real, n- not just to Randy Weingarten, who is a person, even if she's a person you might not agree with, but it's, I think it's hurtful to everybody that may be a child of someone that didn't birth them 
or that's a step parent or a foster parent or an adopted parent. You know, I always gave credit to Michelle Bachwoman when she was running for president, when she would talk about all the children she has. And I met one of her daughters. She was a very nice, nice woman. Um, she would always say, I'm a mother to XYZ children, XYZ that I've adopted, and XYZ foster children. She didn't say, you know, only my biological children. And I gave her a lot of credit for that. But I don't know why Marjorie Taylor Greene feels that she's got this moral high ground because the three children that she's raising are her biological children and the two that Randy Weingarten is raising aren't. I mean, I really, I didn't necessarily have the highest opinion of Marjorie Taylor Greene to begin with, but it really caused me to think significantly less of her after seeing that whole exchange. What do you think? 800-848-9222. I'm going to play this for you again, uh, absent the point of order by Congressman Garcia at the end. Because I really, I had to watch this several times to make sure I understood what she was saying. And then to see, I went to Twitter just to see if she apologized or something. I mean, not that she's the apologizing type, but she doubled down on this. And in my view, this is inexcusable. What do you think? 800-848-9222, Marjorie Taylor Greene questioning Randy Weingarten. Are you a mother? I am a mother by marriage. By marriage, I see. Um, and and you my have... wife is here with me, so I'm really glad that she's here. Rather Our, Sharon Klein. Ms. Weingarten, I reclaim my time. I didn't ask you a question. So oh. What I'd like to talk about is your recommendations to the CDC as not a medical doctor, not a biological mother, um, and, and really not a teacher either. You had no business advising the CDC what the medical guidelines were for school closures because now we have a nation of school children who have suffered because of it. The problem is, is people like you need to admit people that you're just like a political you. activist, not General a teacher, ladies, a- not a mother, and not a medical doctor. Point of order, Mr. Chairman. I, I just want to make. I, I found that really reprehensible. Uh, tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to do the $1,000 minute. Then we'll go through the mail. If you want to send me a piece of email to be read. I don't know what's gone on with the snail mail here, but for some reason, I have not gotten any snail mail in quite some time. So I'm assuming there's a giant pile of it. For me somewhere, but you can still keep sending me snail mail at P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. That's P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. Just send it to my attention, Frank Morano, but I don't think I've gotten any in about three or four weeks. So if you've sent me something in the conventional mail rather than email, I'm not sure where it is. I'm hoping that I will get it sooner rather than later. I sent a note to our folks today in case someone needs to go over to the post office and pick up something that maybe they can do that. So it's P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. Attention, Frank Morano. All right. Uh, Mary Beth is on Long Island. Hello, Mary Beth. Hi. Um, good morning. I originally called regarding Tony LoBianco, and what I wanted to say about him actually fits in with this Marjorie Taylor Greene um, situation, which I didn't know was coming down the pike. So thanks for bringing it up. Sure. Um, 
first of all, he's a remarkable man. What a life he has led. And as you said, you know, he didn't come out and say, oh, I'm a conservative or I'm a liberal. But you could kind of tell where he stood on various issues. And what I what's so fine about him is he's so open minded and people from a different side will say, oh, conservatives, they don't have open minds. What an open minded, wonderful man he is. And that's why he's become so successful in his career, in his life. Well, I I completely agree with everything you said. And, you know, you talk about open mindedness. You know, his he has worked with people like Alec Baldwin and many others who don't share his political views. And you know what? He doesn't I don't think he cares. He just goes and does his job. So, I mean, I agree with you. I think he's a a textbook study in not only talent, but open mindedness. Exactly. And then to come back to teachers, um, the woman who gave him that poem to read and who encouraged his interest in public speaking and acting I mean, where would he be without her? You know, it might have taken him much longer to get where he got. So, you know, thank you to teachers. And to go back to Randy Weingarten, I um, kind of feel the same way you do. I'm not a teacher. Um, I'm the daughter of a teacher. But there's something about her that rubs me the wrong way. And I don't think that the congresswoman should have said what she said. It had nothing to do with the particular issue that she was grilling Randy Weidengarten about. And yet, you know, in my heart as a mom, and I have so many friends who are mothers and stepmothers, I just wish Randy Weingarten, and this is semantics, had said, I'm a step parent. Because she is a step parent. She's not You know, so forgive me. That's like my little issue. And I try to be an open minded person, but that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. She's a step parent, just as a man who marries and his wife has children. He's a step parent. He's not, you know, I'm I'm sorry. That shows, I don't know if that shows I'm closed minded, but I'm more into the semantics of the issue. And I feel that Marjorie Taylor Greene had no business saying what she said to her. It was horrible. Uh, And it it did make me feel sorry for Randy, and I've never felt sorry for her. Well, so just so I understand, what's the difference between being a step-parent and a step-mother? Well, in a family dynamic, the traditional family is a mother and a father. So if... She is a step-mother, I guess, but she's a spouse, and when in gay marriages, they always say, my husband, my wife. How about my spouse? Because I guess I'm too traditional, Frank. I see. I, I no. Just, okay. Well, I appreciate you sharing that, Mary Beth. Thank you. And thanks for the nice feedback on um, the discussion with Tony. Yeah, I, I don't agree. I mean, as far as, like, I don't know what's going on with this family dynamic that she's a part of. But first of all, it's none of my business. <laughs> I don't need to know. I'm not, I'm not going to go start doing inspections like I'm uh, a, an ACS worker demanding to know what degree of, of attention she's paying to these children. But as best we can tell, she and her wife, and look, you can like it or dislike it, but gay marriage is legal. The, they are raising these children together. So what is she if not a mother? I I really found that so objectionable personally. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Mike is in Middletown. Hello, Mike. 
Hey, Frank, how you doing? I'm hanging um, in there. Thanks. First, first time, long time. So Welcome. thank you very much for putting me on. Um, you know, what I, first of all, I think her comments, Marjorie Taylor Greene, are rehensible. Um, I think being a parent myself and being a mother, especially, it, it's so hard, I think, in this age, being a parent. And whether you are a step parent or whether you birthed that, that child, and I, I think it goes back to, I think there's no moral. In this country, I think there's no morals, there's no values, there's very little common sense. And I think if you look at any, whether it's politics, sports, entertainment, who really is there to look up to? I think we've lost that as a country. And I think by her comments like that, just add fuel to the fire that everyone just says what they want, um, no matter how offensive it is, and it's just, um, it's like everyone is, is more of an activist, you know, than a journalism, you know, for their cause. There's no, um, you know, I, I, I learned from my parents that, you know, there's always Republicans and Democrats, and years ago, you know, it was a, a lot closer than it is now. It's like worlds apart, you know, and now it's like you want to kill the other, you know, so if you find out. So you know, party, you Mike, know, it's, like- it's a very good point because years ago, and it didn't matter if people got elected, were conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, the occasional independent, most people that got elected to Congress or the Senate, they wanted to do the same thing. They may have had different ideas. They may have had different ideologies, but they wanted to go there and legislate. They wanted to get laws passed. They had an idea of an agenda that they wanted to enact, They and they knew how to do it. They were going to do the committee work. They were going to do um, the work necessary to build relationships to actually pass bills and hopefully get them signed into law. Wherever your politics, that's what you do. Now, this new crop of congressmen, uh, people that have been elected on the left and the right, they're not interested in that. They're interested in essentially being radio shock jocks on Capitol Hill because they know that's going to lead to more social media engagement, more radio and TV shows playing their clips on TV, more name recognition for them, more money that they can raise, and making them even bigger stars that they can use as a stepping stone to their next political office. That's what uh, I think Ilhan Omar does. That's what I think uh, Rashida Tlaib does. That's what I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for the most part, does. That's what I think Marjorie Taylor Green is doing, and uh, a, yeah. a number of others. And I, I agree with you that decision by these flame, these bomb throwers, to not want to build relationships, but instead make the decision to destroy anybody that's not on the same page with them in the name of just getting attention. I think is destructive. To the country. I don't want to overstate it because there was a time in our country where we had members of Congress uh, killing one another, literally. But um, it's certainly not helpful to a better uh, body politic. Great call, Mike. Thank you for listening and thank you for calling. I hope you'll make it a habit. 800-848-9222. David is in Baltimore. Hello, David uh, yes, on WCBM. Uh, yes, Frank. I, I disagree with you. I, I saw a, a piece on television. How she, she was talking to, to the 
to the uh, politicians, you know, and uh, she she was talking to some uh, in a meeting, and she she's the one. Weingarten started screaming at them. They were asking her why she closed the school, and she started screaming at them. That's how she replied at these politicians. Yeah, look, I I, I think her behavior during the pandemic was horrible. I think the damage that it did in terms of these lockdowns is not going to be something that we just experienced for a year or two. Excuse me, she wanted to close the schools. Yeah, I know, David. At all costs. David, thank you. Thank you. Um, I think that the lockdowns will go down in history as one of, not just for the schools, but uh, especially for the schools, as one of the worst things that's ever happened in the United States of America. And if that sounds dramatic, then so be it. I think the lockdowns were an abomination. But I could tell Randy Weingarten that, and I could point to all the studies that say that, and all the evidence in across the board that says that, without needing to involve her personal family dynamic and saying, you're not a mother, you're not a medical doctor, you're not a teacher. I mean, okay, what are you, Marjorie Taylor Greene? I mean, we have to now make sure we're checking every box before we can have an opinion on something? I I hate that. I had opinions on parenting before I was a parent. I've never served in the military. I have a lot of uh, opinions about where we should be going to war. I've never been a police officer, and yet I have a lot of opinions about the criminal justice system. Never been an attorney. I have a lot of opinions about the legal system. By the way, I am officially filing my complaint against Judge Juan Mershon today in that uh, he's the judge in the Trump case. I have written it out, and I um, have uh, sending it in via snail mail. And I will post that online later on uh, on Facebook. Uh, we'll, we'll revisit that tomorrow because we get a lot going on today. 800-848-9222. Jay is in the Poconos. Hello, Jay. Good morning, Frank. Morning. So uh, Randy Weingarten and Marjorie Taylor Greene are like two opposite ends of the spectrum on their viewpoints between the two. Gets in the way of having an intelligent conversation to fix a problem, and people deserve better their elected officials than that. Yeah, I agree. I agree with everything you said, uh, Jay. And, and I don't even think you so, have to limit it to elected officials. I think people deserve better of their fellow human beings than that. Right. Right. And as far as being a mother, there's a there's a uh, the, being a mother is a job that um, nobody else can claim like once you've carried a child for nine months and delivered it and that's that's something you've gone above and beyond and nobody you know i can't say i gave birth to a child but my my wife did twice so that's comes a certain amount of respect with that also being a yeah but jay jay i don't think that the fact that you're raising these children just because you didn't give birth to them i don't think that in any way diminishes your ability to have an opinion about something in the school system so why should it diminish randy weingarten's right it shouldn't but there is like a special bond there but i'm i'm a step parent and uh so I've given everything I can to my stepkids, and I always try to be good to them. 
And uh, so I know about that. Also being adopted, I've, I, my first wife was adopted, and her parents, you know, gave her every advantage. They gave their money, their time, their love to that, that kid. And, you know, there's a certain amount of respect that goes with that. So everybody, you know, involved with raising a kid, whether it's their own or they're not, they're stepping up where somebody else didn't, and they deserve the respect for doing yeah, so. Yeah, agreed, Jay. I agree with everything you said. Thank you. And I think that there's – I mean, uh, to me, why is this even being brought up in Congress? Yeah, I mean, Congress should not be looking into the family life of their witnesses. Legislate. Do your job. Don't attack the witnesses because they don't meet your definition of motherhood. It's just it's just a mean spirited way to behave. Just it's just nasty. Who needs that? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Paul is on Staten Island. Hello, Paul. Hey, good morning, Frank. Morning. Let, let me start by saying first, uh, you got a new listener, my cousin Chris. Welcome <laughs> aboard, Chris. Thank you. He, he might be listening right now. Oh my goodness. Let's hope so. Yeah. Chris. That's tremendous. I've been trying. I've been trying to get Chris for years. I'm glad we finally got him. It, now, is he a, is he a first cousin, a step cousin, or what? First cousin he's, he's once my removed. First, my first cousin, straight blood cousin. Okay, straight blood cousin. Yeah. So you have yeah. credibility now to talk about cousins in in my yeah. world. Go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, as far as shutting down the schools, I am against anybody who did that. It did so much damage to the kids. Oh, I know my, my my kids were depressed for a while. Yeah, same here. But um, but you don't bring somebody's family into anything, and whether you're bad or good, that's that's a family is still your family. That's that's over. That's stepping over the line. I don't care what anybody says. Yeah, you don't I, bring somebody's family into anything. I'm with you. I hated the lockdowns. I don't like what Randy Weingarten does in terms of policy. But I mean, you know. There's no need to bring, as you just said, someone's family into anything. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Tom is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Tom. Yeah, I just, I mean, I, I just got a question, for, you know, as far as Marjorie Taylor Greene said, you know, her not being a parent. Uh, she, as far as I know, she married that woman in 2018. They're in their 60s. So how old's the kid and how much parenting did she do? You know, I, I, I don't know. All right. But again, what's it Marjorie Taylor Greene's business? Well, I'm just saying everyone does have an opinion. But if you're going to go to someone on parenting and advice, wouldn't you want someone who's at least been a parent? Right, but, you know, she's not there as a parent, right? She's there as the head well, of the union. She, she does. She did make suggestions to the CDC on all these topics and how to right, take right. care but in of her you know, suggestions, the situation in the schools in her, and with the kids. She signed. So you would think who's you right, know, but a so when, would have a better interest, right? But Tom, when the she, children, but when she made the recommendations to the CDC, and again, I disagree with those recommendations vociferously. Mm-hmm. But um, she didn't make those recommendations because she's a parent of two. She made those recommendations as the president of the AFT in that role. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't you think as a, a parent, like you said, you were upset and didn't agree with her on that and her stance on it because it did have an adverse effect on the children. 
don't you think a parent would have that in mind more so than someone who wasn't? Well, I, I, I don't know, but I wasn't a parent at the time of the lockdowns, and I still didn't mm-hmm. agree with Randy Weingarten. But the fact that she's a parent has nothing to do with anything. And it's just, it, to me, I viewed it as an unnecessary attack on anybody that is not a biological parent. And it just struck me as very ugly. And I, I just, I, I, it's the kind of thing that, that just really grates on me tremendously that I think there's too much of. So, uh, no, I, I don't think the fact that she, they got married in 2018 makes any difference to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't care what their family dynamic is. I care about policy, right? And I care about the fact that she's advocating for a policy which I consider to be the wrong one. So you can say that without needing to attack everybody that's a step-parent. Um, it's very, you know, my, my stepmother views my son as a grandson. And I, I found, you know, I, I would really hate to say if she was testifying because she's active in in civic affairs and things of that nature. She's been on the uh, community education council and that whole thing. If someone asked her the question, are are you a grandparent? And she said, well, I'm a grandparent through marriage for some person to then act as almost that didn't count. I think that would be very hurtful to not not only her, but to me and to my son when he's old enough to understand what's going on. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. Well, you know, if Mary and Tom and even Larry, if you want to hold, we'll try and get to you after the $1,000 minute, um, but we are going to go through the mail, so no guarantees. We'll try and do what we can. All right, the, we're going to do the $1,000 minute in just a moment. If you are the seventh caller right now, to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We'll give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. And if you could do that, you will be the proud recipient of $1,000. Simple as that. Be the seventh caller now to 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. What do you say, Ben? Want a hand? No, you guys go ahead. I got too much on my mind to play poker. King bets. Cost you five. Tony, up to you. Hey, Tony, what are you going to do? I'm in. So am I. Likewise. Me too. This is Politics and Poker from the musical Fiorello, which I saw maybe about uh, 23 years ago. In, with Tony Lobianco in the title role of uh, Fiorella LaGuardia. He was phenomenal. And basically, just so you understand what's going on in this song, and you should see that musical if you can, it's wonderful, is the Republican bosses in Manhattan at the time in the 19... 
20s. They are looking for a candidate for Congress. And they want someone that can run in a seat that's unwinnable. And they're trying to come up with someone that will run for the seat that they can control that won't win. And they're talking about it. It's a wonderful show. And you know what? As far as musicals go, it's actually pretty accurate, historically. I'll tell you, they don't make them like Fiorella LaGuardia anymore. You know, the caller before, I think it was Mike in Middletown, great caller. He mentioned how in so many different fields, it seems like there are not enough people to be legitimately admired. Fiorello LaGuardia was in Congress and resigned in Congress to fight in World War I. And not only fight in World War I and risk his life, potentially die, but he dropped bombs over Italy, his ancestral homeland. I mean, to me, there's a lot to admire about Fiorello LaGuardia. That was just one of the many things. All right. Um, It is now time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank. Let me say hello to Neil in Baltimore. Hello, Neil. Good morning, Frank. Uh, Neil, have you heard this segment before? I listen every night. Great. So you know what to do, right? Yes, yes, sir. All right. If you're ready, we'll get started. All right. What do you use to brush your teeth? A toothbrush. What is the capital city of France? Paris. What is the name of the famous novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald that was published in 1925? Yeah, that is... They made a movie about it. Leonardo DiCaprio. I know, I know, I know. I know. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, uh, Not coming to mind, Frank. It's got a G. Got a G in the title. Uh... Can't come up with it, sorry. All right. Okay. Well, it was The Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby. Oh, yeah, is the, the Great Gatsby. Book. So I'm sorry, sorry, Neil. I'm going to put you on hold. Give Kenneth your information. We'll give you We'll give you something, okay? Thanks, Frank. All right. Sorry. Better luck next time. Uh, but uh, the, it was The Great Gatsby, which is now in the public domain. So you could publish your own version of The Great Gatsby, and nobody can tell you differently. All right. Without further ado, it is time for... begin with SMS text messages, and you can SMS text message me at 8168Morano. By the way, if you SMS text message me, I'm not saving everybody's phone number that, that texts me. So if you SMS text message me and you don't say, oh, this is Fred, this is Larry, I have no idea who it is. So I'm not going to attribute this to you, and I'm not going to give your phone number out over the air because you don't want all the folks to call me to call you. Imagine getting a call from me, Frank, at uh, 5 o'clock in the morning, the last thing you need. So uh, if you don't hear me mention someone's name... 
That's why. It's because they didn't sign it in their SMS text message. This person, this is a text message from a couple days, from last week. Um, Matt Blaze insulting Southern children for not brushing their teeth. What a snob. Okay, well, hey, that's for you to judge. Take it up with the darker side of midnight, folks. I think think Matt might have been joking. Cut him some slack. Uh, Someone else writes, does it matter that Randy got married in 2018? No, not to me it doesn't. It doesn't matter at all. Because that doesn't affect her being the head of the UFT at all. Email from Ellen, Tony Lobianco. Hi, Frank. I just loved your interview with Tony Lobianco. What a fabulous and diverse career he has had. His appetite for tackling something new and challenging despite his age is an inspiration for all of us. And his support for veterans is just wonderful. Another great interview, Frank. What you do best. That's nice. Um... Okay, this person writes, if you do this, uh, the no, no shave lawn, no, uh, no shave lawn may that we talked about yesterday. If you don't cut your grass, it makes it harder to cut in June. Thank you for that. That's good advice. Mike writes on the subject plastic, plastic and more plastic. Hello, Frank. I loved your conversation about plastic. It is certainly ubiquitous in all of its various shapes and forms. That's undeniable. One plastic item that's everywhere that we could probably, that we probably couldn't do without is the five-gallon bucket. I think every household in America must have at least one or more. The home improvement centers are filled with them. They carry a variety of products, paint, spackle, adhesives, just to name a few. They're for sale unused with tight-fitting lids if necessary. Imagine if this simple product was available to primitive societies, how useful they would be. This is quite an endorsement for the five-gallon bucket. My goodness. Thank you, Mike. All right, here we got uh, this is from the world of see um, Facebook. Vittorio writes, Have, haven't been able to receive your radio station at all for two weeks in Guelph, Ontario, on AM radio. So I believe David from the Bronx has posted about this in the Facebook group. Apparently, and I think he's right, we checked this out, there's been a great deal of unusual solar activity, solar flares and the like, which is interfering with AM radio transmission, not just our stations, but all over the country. So the best thing you could do, especially if you have Facebook, I know you have the Internet, Listen online. Listen online. You could uh, go to WABCRadio.com. You can go to WCBM's website. You can go to any of the great stations that are carrying us. Listen online or, or just get the app, 77WABC. Or if you can't listen live, listen to the podcast. Just search The Other Side of Midnight on any podcast app. By the way, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm not supposed to say this or not. The, the podcast last Thursday of our conversation with Brian Kilmeade, 90,000 downloads, 90,000 downloads. So people are listening to this podcast. So if you know someone that's not, turn them on to it. They'll thank you for it. You heard, you know, um, Paul, who was talking about his cousin Chris before. His cousin Chris is getting him a really nice birthday gift this year because he turned him on to this show. It's a fact. 
Patricia writing on Facebook. Hi, Frank. Love listening to you on WCBM. Well, that's awfully nice. Thank you, Patricia. We love our guys over there at WCBM. They're great guys. And starting this week, I didn't get to hear any of yesterday's show because I was asleep. Kim Klasik is uh, killing it mid-mornings on WCBM. She may join us on Wednesday morning. I don't think she fully understands how early this show is on, but we'll see. She may join us. Uh, Maria. On Instagram, writing of my experience with Carmine at the Steel Pier in Atlantic City this weekend. When my daughter was born, I couldn't wait till she could walk with me holding hands. Enjoy every minute. She's 45 now. That's nice. Hey, this was a nice message. Uh, I don't go to Belmar. The last time I went to Belmar was 2007. I had a good time there. But uh, I remember I had the oysters at DJ's, which were quite good. And I participated in a press conference there, which turned out to be quite controversial. But um, an Instagram account, Belmar Beach Parking, wrote to me, and he said this. Huge fan of yours. Free parking for you anytime, my friend. Now, that's nice. I saw that. I said, I don't even have to go to Belmar. I don't have any plans to go to Belmar. I don't really, I never thought about the parking in Belmar. I don't know how bad or good the parking is in Belmar now. But now that I know I have an opportunity to park for free, it makes me want to make a special trip to Belmar just to go there. So I said to this fella, and he didn't tell me his name, but he, I, he, I said, so nice of you. Thank you. And he says, I get off at work right when your show starts every day and consider myself your number one fan. Talk more about wrestling. Love that. Well, you know what? There's some people that love the wrestling talk, some people that don't like it, some people that love the UFO talk, some people that don't like it. You know what it is? If you're if you're listening to the show and there's something on it that you don't like, just wait 10 minutes and there'll be something else you hopefully do like. And if you don't like that, just listen 10 more minutes. There'll be something you like. And if you're still not interested in what we're doing, chances are you probably fall asleep by then anyway. All right. Janine writes, hi, hi, Frank. Thanks for another terrific radio show. And here's more AI info, scary stuff. Also, I think that listeners are doing better lately when answering $1,000 minute questions because you didn't ask political or historical questions. Unless, of course, you did ask them and I just didn't hear them. Just a thought. You know, Janine, I always try to include one political question, one historical question and one current events question. So that's that. Um, oh, this is an interesting question. This is a text from someone that's unsigned. The question is, have any of the hosts that I've worked with, either as a host or as a producer, ever been suspended? Or, 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 or the question is suspended. And the answer is yes. And there's only one that I can think of. And the answer is going to shock you when I tell you who it is. No one will believe this. I'm not sure he'll appreciate me telling you this on air. The only host in my time as either a host or a producer that was ever suspended was, or the only on-air commentator, was Warner Wolf 17 years ago. And I'll tell you what happened. That's a great question, and I don't know. Tell me your name. I'll give you credit if you want. What happened was Warner was obsessed with the guy that fired him at uh, Channel 2 in New York. And then the radio station we were on in New York 
we developed this partnership with Channel 5. Who does it turn out is the general manager of Channel 5? The same guy that fired Warner at Channel 2. So Warner couldn't help himself, but every time this guy's name came up or Channel 5 came up, he would go out of his way to make a joke bashing this guy. And so he was. we were all specifically told, don't say anything bad about blank. Warner made his joke again, and the program director at the time said, go home, you're suspended for the day. Came back the next day, and he was really sad about it, too, because Warner is such a nice guy. Let's go to the video. That is the only instance I can remember of someone being suspended. Um, And he's the last guy you'd ever think. With all the crazies that I've worked with over the years, he's the guy that gets suspended. Uh, All right. uh, Thomas writing, Hi, Frank. Yet another great show tonight. And I found Dr. Twangy's book you cited and hope you can get her on soon to discuss the evidence, cyberbullying, etc. That's caused a huge rise in teen girls' depression and incidents of suicide, as has been in the news about Islip and other towns in Long Island and no doubt everywhere in the United States. Great point. Jay writes, on the subject of TikTok viable alternatives. Hey, Frank, love your show, sir. Alternative number one, YouTube shorts, easier to ban TikTok. Alternative number two, ideal, better friggin' parenting. Teach and make your kids understand why social media is not great. Love to you and your family. Thank you, Jay. Kevin writes, you are 100% correct on social media. I wish it would just go away. It has destroyed more than the topic you are on. Another issue contributing to your discussion is the 80 new new fake genders. That puts untold pressure on kids and also men pretending to be women taking spots such as athletes' positions from them. Well, look, I'm not anti-social media. I'm anti-social media abuse. I'm anti-social media companies preying on people, especially children, and I'm anti what social media can do to children. There's a lot of good things that can be said of social media, and um, I don't want to act like social media is all bad. It's not. I use social media. You can find me on Twitter at Frank Morano right now. Linda writes, hi, Frank. Subject, your interview with the gentleman from Russia. Hi, Frank. Absolutely fantastic interview. Your initial and follow-up questions were excellent. I believe one of your gifts relative to interviewing guests is that you let the person speak, answer questions, and then you generally ask excellent follow-up questions. I really enjoy and appreciate your interviews as well as your updates and stories about Little Carmine. Take care and stay well. Linda, thank you. Uh, Last one here. Let me pick a short one. Uh, No, it's too long, too long. If we don't get to your letter today, I'll try and get it next time. Um, Diane writes of the Trump rape. Tryon rooms are not soundproof. A violent rape would be heard by other people. The variety of, of subjects on your show make it like a magazine of the air. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Diane. Yeah, I mean, I think it's ridiculous to bring a rape claim 28 years or after an incident happened. I think it's just, there's a reason there's a statute of limitations, and I, I think it's impossible to evaluate the validity of evidence After this much time has passed, I do. All right. Um, If we didn't get to your letter today, hopefully we will on the next edition of... The Other Side of Midnight. 
Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side at Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Marianne! Good morning. Rusty, uh, Larry, you got 15 seconds. Frank, thank you for uh, playing that snippet of Marjorie Taylor Greene questioning Randy Weingarten. I'm going to listen to that whenever I'm depressed. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene was magnificent. Neil. Mayor Adams happens to be an imbecile. He wants to ban meat, dairy, and canned soup. What are we supposed to eat? The rats that are running around his uh, apartment building? Raji. Mark Levine, warmongering. Uh, Mark Levine, who refused to serve, is daily propagandizing the U.S. to go to war against Russia, China, and with Israel against Iran. Rusty. Yes, tell Sid to get that big windbag from Long Island off the air. He needs an enema. He should take a fleet one, too. Jimmy. Sid's a moron. Sid's a moron. There you go. How apropos. All right. That about... Slams the lid on things for today. Uh, tomorrow we, is Dr. Sky Day. Dr. Sky Day, Dr. Sky Night, whatever the case may be. And uh, I have been making a list of – tomorrow is Wednesday, right? Yeah, okay. I have been making a list of subjects to go over with him, and there's a lot of good stuff. So if you have questions related to space or anything of that nature, uh, tomorrow's a good day to call in. Also, author David O. Stewart who was our George Washington historian. He's got a new book out about the Civil War, so we will uh, talk about that. And uh, I have some fun stuff that I'm going to go through with you that we didn't have a chance to get to today because we had three guests. So a lot to get to tomorrow. I hope you'll be with us. You want to stay in touch with me, you can do so. Email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com or find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash moranofan. Join our ever-growing Facebook group by just searching Morano Radio fans and haters. And as I said yesterday, in the immortal words of the late, great Jerry Springer, be good to yourself and each other. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.